The following podcast may contain movie spoilers, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. Sensitive listeners should plug their ears with their fingers. In three, two, one. Yes. <laughs> Rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good world, what you watching? Be specific. The time, the time has finally come to wrap up this season of Time Twisters, and we are doing it in the best and honestly the worst way possible. As has been true all season and the two seasons before this, I'm your subgenre host, Josh Dassel. Surrounding me for the second time in a row to cap off a subgenre season, it's a round table of the most undeniably obnoxious people I know whom I happen to care for most in the world. Back despite popular demand, in studio are Nick, Charlotte, Alan, and Fabian to tell it like it is and then some about the 1995 Terry Gilliam Fest. It's a virus meets time travel action drama that stars big names like Bruce Willis, Madeline Stowe, and Brad Pitt. Hey Bob, you do the job? This is 12 Monkeys. And we are back at the big table, the slightly different sounding round table than you might be used to with four of us here in our slightly larger studio space and one stuffed into the Zoom tubes. Welcome back to Subgenre, guys. Thank you. Hey. hey. We need a better <laughs> intro than that, Charlotte. Come on. That's all I got. Okay, that's fair. I haven't had enough coffee yet. <laughs> it's 11 o'clock as we're recording this. and That would uh, be a.m. A.m. <laughs> And I'm usually asleep for six more hours. Oh, bold. For those who did not listen to the last time we all got together. And why didn't you? Yeah, get on that. Sons of bitches. At least download it. The last time was at the end of season two. We did a two-part episode on Ocean's Eleven, which if you haven't listened to that, please shut this off. This will be crap. Go listen to that. That'll be great. No, this one will be better. Oh, this one will be better. Oh, perfect. men this whole time. (laughs) Yeah, that'll be different. Well, who is going to be yelling at us is to my left. This is Charlotte Moore Lambert. Uh, Charlotte is, I think we describe you as a TikTok creator and an audiobook narrator, and you are actually the guest host of the episode that will precede this, mm. which I have not edited yet, cool. uh, for the Don't. film Time After Time. And Ooh. that film was good. <laughs> spoiler alert. A spoiler for Charlotte's feelings about this. Some <laughs> sentiments will be inbound. <laughs> oh. uh, across the table from her is uh, our friend Alan Mall. He's a playwright, and his new play, The Weight of Everything We Know, has had a wonderful, successful run. As we had far the as world aware. premiere at Theater Raleigh, a nice regional theater here in beautiful North Carolina. It was awesome. To find. I saw it. It was good. It was so good. Yes. It was so good. And you were the guest host of our uh, third episode of the season on a really, really hard one to do, Memento. In the middle of recording that episode, which was a blast to do, all I could think was, Josh is going to have a hell of a time putting this together. <laughs> and how right you were. <laughs> Thank you, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> Great audio. Sorry. 
Sorry. Across the table from me is a, a filmmaker and a video producer and an advertising director. He kind of does all of the things. Mm. His name is Nick Heim. Hey, Nick. Hey, it's good to be back. Nick, you were with us to kick off this season. I was. With one of my favorite movies, Groundhog Day. Yes, yeah, so that was a fun one to do. You know, we got to just like record one episode and play it back to back over and over again and uh, recreate that experience for people. <laughs> that is what you did, I'm assuming. Yeah. And uh, joining us from the West Coast, where it is basically, I don't know, what, at two in the morning or yeah, something, something like over there? The ass crack of dawn. That's right. It's screenwriter and Oscar-nominated producer, excuse me, Fabian Marquez. Hey, Fabian. Hola, soy yo, Fabian. <laughs> <laughs> the West Coast has really changed him. <laughs> Fabian, si. uh, Fabian has not joined me in a couple of seasons. Fabian, you were here in season one to talk about some submarine films. I think we did Run Silent, Run Deep, and then uh, you came back with the group at the end of last season for Ocean's Eleven, so welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. We're going to have to get you in here for your own confusing, long-ass single episode with me again. Only if the fans abhor it. <laughs> I, for one, will vote against it, so Josh, make it happen. Strong we don't have fans. <laughs> the fan has voted. <laughs> well, the last time we did this, we were kind of doing the same thing we are now, which is we're not in the main studio. We're sitting in kind of a bigger space here, so it is going to sound a little different, and that is intentional. We're going to try to give you the best show that we can here, despite who we all are and what we're talking about. But we are covering the film 12 Monkeys, so just... In brief, I'm going to go around the circle. Maybe we'll start with Fabian. And uh, when I said, hey, we're going to cover 12 Monkeys, what was your uh, initial thought? I was initially pretty excited. And I remember fond feelings about the film when it came out. I loved La Jetée, the movie that this is inspired by. And revisiting it, it did not deliver the goods the way that I remembered oh. it back in 95. So I'm interested to hear everyone else's thoughts. Yeah, I had a very similar experience. I remember seeing it in 95. That was the last time I saw it. it was either in the theater or shortly thereafter. I remember thinking it was very clever and, and cool. And I think there are parts of it that I still appreciated. But in general, I did not enjoy watching it the way I did the first time, I felt. For me, my first thought was, ooh. And then I thought, remember the movie I was going to see? And I was like... Oh, because oh. there's so many hard to watch moments in yeah. this movie that I'm just like, this is a film that I admire, but it's going to be a rough ride to watch this again. This is the third time I had watched it. Yeah, it's one I appreciate the effort that went into it more than the outcome, because I mean, there's a lot of drooling and ass scrubbing <laughs> so in this movie. <laughs> not, not enough, some might say. <laughs> filled Bruce Willis's mouth with KY jelly and just had him dribble it out. <laughs> I think that's wow. how they sold him on the movie. Yeah. He did take a pay cut to work on it. <laughs> yeah, he did. And Charlotte, you had not seen this movie prior to prepping for the show? I had not. And it had come strongly recommended to me by almost everyone I know who'd seen it. But then in hindsight, almost everyone I know who'd seen it were dudes. So I think I already had in my head that this was like kind of a dude movie, which isn't necessarily, it's it, not it, that it's not false. movies. <laughs> what really made my sphincter clench up was one that I saw that it was made by Terry Gilliam because I truly do not like his uh -huh. filmmaking style at all, which is another thing dudes don't like me to say. Uh -oh. No, but I think there's something there because like, if you think about Terry Gilliam has a very unique look to his films and a very unique feel to his films. And there's never been anyone else who's like copied him. Like Tim Burton gets a lot of copiers. Wes Anderson gets copiers. They're probably the, the closest analogs. But like, I know who those movies are for. Like Tim mm -hmm. Burton movies are for goths and Wes Anderson <laughs> movies are for hipsters. Yeah. Who is Terry Gilliam movies for? Every for Terry Gilliam. People, That's who who live in a, <laughs> people who live in a dump? Like the guy with no teeth from 
from the movie. I think he's the target audience I, for this. So if you can't tell, this is going to be an interesting discussion wait. as we go forward. To set this up for maybe if you haven't seen it or if you haven't seen it in a while or if you just want to hear me talk, this is a, would you describe it as a post-apocalyptic yeah. movie? It is the And yet somehow a pre-apocalyptic. And yet still, mm-hmm. uh, yet pre-apocalyptic. It's about a convict who is sent back in time to find a pure strain of a virus that has wiped out humanity and there you go and that guy's Bruce Willis <laughs> and that, that's kind of the setup for the movie give or take yeah mm-hmm. okay yeah. so this film as was mentioned was inspired by a short film which was from 1962 it's by a French filmmaker Chris Marker who did a film called Le Jeté has anybody here seen Le Jeté I have yes. you did give us yeah. that homework but I didn't do it of course <laughs> I watched the movie we're discussing instead yes it's only 28 minutes you're missing out though okay so although good. if you've seen 12 Monkeys a lot of the fun of La Jeté will be lost because it's the same story yeah. yes exactly. and no yes and no it's the same setup in that there is a memory from childhood and it kind of loops back on itself and all of that and the, there's a guy in the future who has to go back to the past to find out what happened so they can fix things in the I mean it's that's the, Terminator it's the same story it's, it and is Terminator constant butt scrubbing <laughs> But in still photo form. <laughs> so the thing about La Jete that I always loved is it is shot entirely as a series of still photos, like a photo montage, except for one shot. And watching yeah. people in a movie theater react to that is one of the most fun things. Like we watched it in film school many times, so I would know that part was coming up and you could like look around the room and there's one scene where a woman is sitting in bed and it's been still photos for 25 minutes straight and then she just turns and looks at the camera and everyone loses their mind. They're like, Whoa! <laughs> But it's, it's so affecting. It's one of the best shots in anything ever because of how much setup there is to it. And it's truly really, really cool. It's interesting to me that you mentioned that because I was on Blue Sky, which is the new better gayer Twitter mm-hmm. right now, and complaining <laughs> about this film late last night. And somebody <laughs> replied, Chris Marker's La Jete is a much better film. Wonderful art cinema of the French new wave. I'll be showing it in class in a few weeks. There you go. Every yeah. film teacher loves to show this movie because it's arty but also it's a sci-fi adventure story which you don't get many of those quite honestly that is why i saw le jeté for the first time was to teach it that makes total sense and especially in a film class when you get a lot of arty films that don't have anything interesting this has that the twist that makes 12 monkeys so interesting of the you know the end of the movie being tied to the beginning of the movie it's definitely one of the more fun ones to watch in class the film was directed by terry gilliam terry gilliam if you don't know terry gilliam is a member of monty python was their chief animator as well as being part of the crew there was the one American in the British group. I always forget he's American. Yeah. He died from the same ailment that has come for Bruce Willis now. Oh, damn it. I did not know that. Yeah. I thought Terry Gilliam was still alive. It's the other Terry. Who Is it died. the other Terry? Yeah. Oh, the other, Terry the Jones. Other yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, oh, uh, the Chaucer Jones. Scholar one died. There we yeah. go. Gilliam has directed a lot of movies, of course, some Monty Python stuff, but also did movies like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, did Time Bandits, which is one that I remember from yeah. uh, when I was a kid. You're a Time Bandits so fan, good. Fabian? I love Time Bandits. It doesn't hold up. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Terry <laughs> Gilliam, his films don't hold up. No. <laughs> But Brazil, though. No. But Brazil is another one where, like, I remember liking it, and then I rewatched it, and I'm like, this is a miserable movie to (laughs) sit through. Like, it's so deeply unpleasant to the characters in it. For me, at least, when I was younger, watching movies that were, like, very cynical felt like they were more real. And I don't feel that way anymore. I feel now that's kind of a shortcut people use when they don't have something else to say. Male people. Oh. We'll come back to that. I have thoughts. Carry on. Fair. Mm -hmm. Fisher King similarly is kind of 
bleak. But that one I've hopeful. never seen. I don't think I've ever seen Fisher King. That Robin Williams, is that Fisher King? Yeah, and it got all kinds of Oscar love. Oh, um, yeah. And it was the film that Gilliam made just before this mm -hmm. one. And very Gilliam-esque. I and mean, the thing about 12 Monkeys that I find quite odd is that, say what you will about Gilliam, like him or hate him, this movie does not have his usual fanciful adornments like Fisher King and a lot of the Python movies. He doesn't go wackadoodle in 12 Monkeys, really. And, and I think that that was part of my disappointment with the film. He has that garbage dump aesthetic where like, you know, he really wants you to feel like you're living in an abandoned hospital all the time. Yeah. Or, you know, for this one, it was power plants where they filmed a lot of it. But usually that is balanced by some more magical realism that is not present here. Yeah, you feel like Tom Waits could appear in the background singing a song at any moment. And Tom Waits is on the soundtrack in the exactly. middle. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> This was written by one of my favorite screenwriters, David Webb Peoples, along with, I believe it's his wife, Janet Peoples. Mm -hmm. So Peoples wrote Blade Runner. Yeah. He wrote Unforgiven. He wrote Leviathan. And he wrote a little remembered movie that was on HBO every four minutes back in the day called The Blood of Heroes about, it was like a post-apocalyptic football mm. thing. Um, oh man, which was I did amazing. not know that he wrote that. Yes, he did. Both him and his wife worked in state psychiatric hospitals oh. earlier in their lives. So that, they said, informed their, their writing of the script quite a bit. Of course, we mentioned the people that star in this. Big names you're going to recognize. Bruce Willis, Brad Pitt, Madeline Stowe. Madeline Stowe is one of those names that you don't hear yeah, I forgot much about in. her after the 90s. Yeah, basically. she never became yeah. like a bigger star. And I mean, she's usually good in what you see her in, but she just, for whatever reason, never hit it the same as some of the others. And she had some really good roles. I mean, she, it, Shortcuts, I think, is maybe where she got her big break, but she's also shows up in The Two Jakes and in Last of the Mohicans and a few other things and just has a personality that really helps as glue in this to me. We'll talk about that, but helps take what is a really, really ungrounded story and at least give it some legs. Well, she's the only one, while. she's the only one reacting to things in a human way for a long time. Like, everyone yeah. else is so at an 11 and she's kind of the only sane yeah. person in the story until the end. So Brad Pitt as part of his study for all of this, you talked about the peoples uh, working in mm -hmm. the psychiatric hospital. Supposedly Brad Pitt went and hung out in psychiatric hospitals to figure out his character as well. This was, at least for me, and I, I think for other you guys can tell me what you think, but this was the movie where when I saw him I thought, oh, he can actually do a performance that it's not just handsome guy standing somewhere, you know. And I think for a lot of critics too, it suddenly bumped him up into like serious actor territory. Mm -hmm. Looking at it now, it's a lot. Like he's yeah. going so far over the top, but I think a lot of that was in reaction to he was just named like sexiest man of the year that year. And so he wanted to be seen as someone who really went all method actory. And at the time it was such a departure, it seemed more exciting than it does now, where now it feels more over the top and performative. Well, he was coming off of like not very long before this. He was the long blonde haired dude in Legends of the Fall yeah, and yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff, right? And that was all that he was doing. You know, he was just being the kind of handsome leading man, soft-spoken guy. I just saw Brad Pitt's first like leading role in The Dark Side of the Sun. Have you guys oh, I haven't seen, seen that? No. <gasps> I know a thing you don't know. Yes. Mm. It was a Yugoslavian film. Oh my. Wow. That Pitt auditioned for in LA, he beat out like 1,300 other guys or some obscene number, and he spends almost the entire film in a gimp suit. Oh, wow. <laughs> you almost never see his face. It's a bold choice to cast Brad, Brad Pitt's face Pitt. and then not <laughs> show it in the movie. And then not put it in. And um, it's a uh, movie that got made. And <laughs> It is certainly one of the movies of all time. It is, there a, was. <laughs> it is a film. 
and you all should watch that okay. because <laughs> as terrible it as it was, it's still more enjoyable than this one. <laughs> oh, this was the very first movie I ever saw Brad Pitt in as a young man. Ah. And so my impression of him is like, that guy is very handsome, but also terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> He's really crazy. It's just funny because most people, it was seven or it was Legends of the Fall. But for me, I'm just like, ah, I don't He's like him He's the guy from the psychiatric <laughs> yeah. ward. Yeah, yeah and I, I think... Fight Club was the first movie that I saw him in. California, with a K. Did you ever see California? No, I did not. Where he plays a roving killer named Early Grace. (laughs) (laughs) And he goes out of his way to be completely repugnant. He's great in it, but he's also kind of hard to watch because he's such a disgusting ass. (laughs) <laughs> Co-stars in the film include Mr. Christopher Plummer, who, of mm. course, everyone knows Sound of Music. He's uh, recently in Knives Out. Is General Chang in the Star Trek series? Am I it's right? True, that one? Mm-hmm. And uh, it is interesting, since he is in Knives Out, and in this film, he has a Benoit Blanc accent the whole time. Like, well, right. I declare <laughs> it's time for my virus to go <laughs> viral, as they say. <laughs> and he was part of Somewhere in Time, which was the second film mm, of oh, this season right. that we covered. The other big name, big-ish name that uh, you're going to recognize maybe from this film is David Morse. Yeah. David Morse from Green Mile and from The Hurt Locker and from one of my favorite movies, Contact. Just oh, a, a familiar face and some good stuff. Yeah, he's always solid and you know he does a good job in this being kind of the creepy side character that you don't really pay that much attention to until yeah. you need to. He's in there for 30 seconds and they're very good 30 <laughs> they are. seconds. You're like, oh, he's not right. <laughs> also, uh, Christopher Maloney. Yes, Maloney, yeah. I paused to make sure that I was recognizing yeah. him. I'm like, oh, he's playing a cop. He's playing a cop. <laughs> Look how much hair he has. Exactly. Yeah, I also had that thought. So this whole film has an interesting backstory as to how it got made. Like we said, it's based on Legete, but the way we got to Legete is the executive producer on this film, Robert Cosberg, who was a low-level producer prior to this on the greatest Arnold Schwarzenegger film, Commando. <laughs> it's not great. <laughs> no, no, it is fun. no. There's no argument about this. That's the greatest Arnold Schwarzenegger film. Movie? <laughs> no, he's not. But he was a fan of Chris Marker. He was a fan of Legete and persuaded Marker to let him pitch the project to Universal. Yeah, so actually Chris Marker apparently hated every single Hollywood movie except Vertigo. That's the only one he ever liked. And interestingly, there is a scene from Vertigo. Right. But he was not interested in them making it. But he had one filmmaker he admired who was Francis Ford Coppola. And so they arranged a meeting with the two screenwriters, Chris Marker and Francis Ford Coppola, who basically just said, hey, these guys are good. You should let them make Legete into another movie and he's like oh okay <laughs> and that was it <laughs> universal yeah. bought the project they put up you know roughly 30 million to make it which you know not a great budget but you know some money to make the thing mm-hmm. and gilliam who was the preferred director on this thing gilliam had just come off of he always starts to make movies and then they blow up and oh, then he God, doesn't yeah. do them so he you know he tried man of la mancha and he was working on tale of two cities and that blew up yeah and apparently when he when they lost him to uh, tale of two cities they adjusted the script to be less weird so other directors would be more interested. And then he came back and he's like, why did you ruin the script? I loved it. And so then they changed it back to the way they had originally written it. And the fact that Universal even put up $30 million for this movie is a little surprising because they were just coming off of having lost their shirt on Waterworld, yeah. which was horrendously expensive. <laughs> it, is it though? No. <laughs> no. Right. It's boring. But, but it was not like, it's one of those that's so discussed as being a flop. You expect it to be horrible and it's just generic and kind of forgettable. So what Gilliam had to do 
apparently to help make this budget work with everything that he wanted to do was basically go to Bruce Willis and go, hey, dude, will you work for free <laughs> or will you work for, you know, scale or something? What's your KY jelly? <laughs> Can we feed you all of the KY jelly? you could drink? <laughs> What's the goo in my mouth situation? <laughs> Some reports say that he worked for nothing and deferred his payment till after. Some of them, I think probably the more reliable ones say that he just lowered his fees so that they could get him through the door. Apparently, Terry Gilliam hated Bruce Willis. He, he did not want to cast him in this, but the studio wanted him in this because this is a quote from Terry Gilliam and I had to write it down because it was so good. First of all, he talks about his moo in terms mm-hmm. of like the pursed mm-hmm. lip expression. He says, I hated that moo face he does in his films when he gets nervous. I thought, God, that's horrible. He does this moo with his mouth. It's like a Trump mouth. For a moment, it goes all Trumpian. It's rectal. It's like I'm looking at somebody's <laughs> asshole. <laughs> When was this interview given? Recently. Wow. <laughs> Did he wait till until Bruce, Bruce was sick? Problems? I think so. Yeah. The man is dying, Terry. <laughs> oh. Yeah, but his mouth looks dumb. <laughs> I hate looking at it. Gilliam, I think, wanted Nick Nolte no. to no. play the role to start with. Can you imagine Nick Nolte? And Jeff Bridges, I think, was in and talks. Jeff Bridges yeah. was another. They yeah. just come I off of Fisher King. Supported that actually. Yeah, yeah, Jeff Bridges would have been good. Would have been really interesting. Bridges would have actually maybe grounded this film. It's the Twelve yeah. Monkeys, man. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> That's just like your just like, opinion. That's just like your virus, man. the virus, man. <laughs> Universal objected to both of those. They're like, no, we're not going to do that. And so that's how we ended yeah. up with Bruce Willis. I talked over you. You're fine. You I, it's, it's, I'm going to cough through this whole damn thing. Listen, so. if we're going to try and do this as a one person talks at a time thing, that's boring and stupid and we shouldn't Fair. do it. Charlotte will be editing this episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Spoken like someone well, who doesn't Charlotte, have to Charlotte do the audio cuts. 90% of this group episode. <laughs> yeah, what? weird. It's amazing. Apparently Gilliam didn't like Brad Pitt either. You know, can you blame him? Like, I don't think Gilliam no. liked anybody. That, that is true. I, st- I still don't think he likes anybody. Yeah, the casting director, I think, convinced him, you know, Brad Pitt's kind of a thing. He's going to be but a thing. But he wasn't, though. Cause... Well, he was beautiful. He had shown some acting chops here and there. He'd been Thelma and Louise and, you know, had that turn. Yes. Cool world. Cool, cool world, world, sure. I don't think he filmed any of the next, like, he hadn't filmed Seven or Interview with a Vampire or there was another movie that came out sort of concurrently. I can't remember. Yeah, Didn't Legend, Seven come out in 95? That's when it came out. But oh, back when they were casting that, this. I right, gotcha. so it yeah. was, it, none of those movies had been released at the mm. time this movie was Apparently, though, he had just been named Sexiest Man of the Year like as they were filming. Yes. And so then peop, uh, they had an, a thing where a fan snuck into the prison where they were filming the mental hospital scenes, and this woman hid herself under one of the beds all night so she could be there and try and get to Brad Pitt in the morning. <laughs> Did she do it? They don't say. They just said it was a, a dicey situation. So I'm guessing they shot the- her. <laughs> <laughs> The Thelma and Louise thing, though, we can't understate that how huge that was. Yeah. Like his little five minutes in that movie blew him up, and this is in you know, pre-social media, pre-phones, and people were all agog. Of, yeah, of he's very well, pretty. Immediately after that, I mean, immediately after that, and while Twelve Monkeys was being edited and waiting to be released. In 94, Interview with the Vampire comes out. Legends right. of the Fall is, comes out in 94. Seven comes out in 95. He started as nobody when they filmed this, really. And as this thing gets released, and this is released in early 95, he's huge. 
And yeah, so, so that not only helps on, him, they yeah. bank on him. That's a Brad Pitt movie, everybody. Yeah, all of a sudden. You know, yeah. we knew that. Well, we got him. <laughs> we were we were really smart. Yeah, that superstar. Brad I, Pitt, Terry Gilliam, who loved Brad Pitt from the start. <laughs> because of his non-rectal mouth. His mouth was definitely Of both of the stars in this movie, his mouth is the least objectionable to me. Terry Gilliam, American Monty Python member. <laughs> Well, they shot this thing from February to May, and they shot it in and around Philly and Baltimore, which is where the setting of this uh, takes place. Apparently, Gilliam was obsessed with power plants after doing Brazil, because they had done a bunch of Brazil stuff in power plants, and he really liked this one particular power plant in Philadelphia. And they went in there, and a piece of the ceiling almost crushed the location manager, but he still wouldn't back down. And so they spent three months renovating and doing asbestos abatement on it to get it usable for shooting. And, I mean, you'd think you'd just pick somewhere else. Pick a different place. <laughs> but, uh, and then the, the asylum part was actually an old prison that was supposedly like a, a well-known prison. Al Capone was supposedly imprisoned there at one point. Yeah, and then they had the lady sneak in and try and get to Brad Pitt, so it sounds like an interesting shoot. <laughs> when it was finally done, it was given a limited release, so it opened in LA and it opened in New York in late December, right after Christmas in 95, and was then given a full release at the beginning of 96 in January to about, you know, 1,600 theaters or so, and pulled in about 14 million in its opening weekend, which had this film have been released prior to Brad Pitt being Brad Pitt, you're probably looking at about half that. Yeah. I mean, they ended up making a lot long term. I mean, they made uh, on that smallish budget, they made 170 million almost. I mean, that's a lot. I think every dude I dated in high school had a copy of it on. I think everyone. Yeah. I mean, like it was just ubiquitous in dude college dorm rooms you know, like everything was part of the dvd shelf of yeah. every dude mm-hmm. i knew and it stayed in the number one in the box office for about two weeks until finally it got knocked out of there by films like tarantino released from dusk till dawn and uh, mr holland's opus with richard dreyfus came out and even the uh, you know the farley and spade black sheep comedy that followed up tommy boy you know none of those are great no None of them are. Oh, yeah. Well, I saw Mr. Holland's Opus when it came out, and I was just at that right age. I was just like, oh, my God, the emotions. And (laughs) This was nominated for two Oscars. Didn't win either of them, but it was up for Best Costume Design for Julie Weiss, who ultimately lost to James Atchison for Restoration, and Best Supporting Actor for Pitt. Good for that guy. But, unfortunately, he was up against Kevin Spacey for The Usual Suspect. You're not going to win that. Oh, Kevin Spacey. I mean, time has been so kind to Kevin Spacey. He really has made... God. So many decisions the that we can that all... will always remain yes. untarnished. He will never be digitally replaced by Christopher Plummer <laughs> in a movie. I guarantee that. <laughs> uh, Pitt would win the Golden Globe, though, for his performance, and I guess beat out Spacey for that. So, all right. The world evens itself yeah, out. I guess. Um, this movie eventually would spin itself off years later into a sci-fi series, which was not good. But it had so many seasons. Like, when I was trying to find this uh, flick on Amazon, I was like, wow, there's a lot of seasons of the 12 monkey's show which i'm not going to watch no that was another thing that got made why did you guys get into this industry like look this is a case of somebody someone was like hey all right what if we looked at this 30 minute french art house film and we made it into a two hour and 10 minute movie with bruce willis and then what if 20 years later we took that diluted it even more with as much ky as we can find and which is a surprisingly large so amount. much and then stretch it out over 12 seasons 
that no one will watch, but we will keep throwing money after because what else are we going to do from our enormous houses in L.A.? Like, I mean, I, th- I think... No, I'm when, not when, done. When there, it's like... <laughs> you know what it's like? It's like the success of the Barbie movie, and now they want to make Polly Pocket right. movies. Yeah, and Polly it's Pocket's like, that's not why people... Okay, sorry. Go on, Nick. If you think of movies as long corporate videos, you're more on the nose than you might think. The whole goal is always to minimize risk for mid-level executives. That's always the goal. And then if some art gets made along the way, that's a nice accident that we can all enjoy. <laughs> Maybe the real movie was the box office profits we made along the way. <laughs> that absolutely. The merchandising licensing. Yeah. say no. Well, this is why in some degrees, I, you know, I worked in a video store in the 90s. So this is why in the 90s you had a lot of really amazing low budget movies mm-hmm. was because during the 90s, a lot of directors either stepped out of the studio system or they just went and sold their blood for, you know, a few yeah. months like Rodriguez and, mm-hmm. and then, you know, made El Mariachi or whatever. They did what they wanted to and they didn't have a middle manager that they had to keep their job. But anytime that happens, then the suits immediately start closing that door as quickly as they can. I mean, it happened on YouTube as well. Like the early days of YouTube was just kind of you could organically become a famous person with followers. And now it's all through corporate you know, yeah. channels and it's they'll do it for whatever the next thing is, too. Um, this movie was produced by Charles Roven, uh, Roven, who just produced Oppenheimer, which I have yet to see. Same. American Hustle, The Dark Knight. He did Three Kings and also was the producer on The Blood of Heroes. Second plug for that movie. Shot by Roger Pratt. Pratt is great. Roger Pratt shot Chocolat. He shot the original Batman, Tim Burton's Batman, mm. and has done a few movies in the Harry Potter franchise as well, um, but also makes a couple of cameos, I think, in this film. Oh, wow. Who makes a couple yeah. of cameos? Roger the, Pratt. The DP? Yeah, the DP. Oh, who is he? Uh, he just told you. Like, well, no, do, I mean, like, who is he in the movie? He's the DP. <laughs> you see Nick in movies. What's a movie? There's a, there's a photography. Someone has to direct it. What is? Why do we call them a movie? You put a lot of still pictures together, and you only let one of them move. Now, I, that I've heard of. Edited by Mick Oddsley, who would do the Brad Pitt movie uh, Interview with Vampire, the movie that Brad Pitt was in that kind of pumped Never him up. Never heard of it. Um, Dangerous Liaisons, and he's also done some Harry Potter, who hasn't. The, I haven't. The music in this. Harry Potter. Oh, my. Ooh. Ooh, hello. What was the KY budget on that? Can we get KY as a sponsor? I mean, I'm giving them enough airtime. Can I get some of that sweet, sweet jelly money? The music in this is cool. I, that, that's my only. That's the only thing I can say. I that, just. I was expecting more to that. As sound. soon as you told me you wanted us to talk about Twelve Monkeys, that accordion overture yeah. at the beginning yes. started playing in my head, and I'm like, so that. So right. So when we're talking about the accordion overture, it's this. It's too low. I'm gonna turn the volume up. No. No, no, hold on. There. How about that? This is the opening credits are awful. Like visually, they're just awful to look at. They're very 90s. They don't make it. Look, I mean, just type (laughs) typographically, just they're barely readable. This pink text over a spinning spiral of red monkeys. Like, and then the text <laughs> How many monkeys were there in the logo? More than 12. More than 12. And then the yeah. text sharpens for just a second before it blurs again. And it it all feels like very together. early graphic software. Yes. Yeah, like, but the music generally in this movie was done by the British musician Paul Buckmaster, who was a lot of times an orchestrator. He orchestrated the Madman Across the Water album from Elton John, so Tiny Dancer, that kind of stuff. It's a good song. Um, was also, oh dear God, the violin on Drops of Jupiter. Oh my God. Right. Ding, ding, ding. But that, that song, he didn't write that. 
that's not a Paul Buckmaster composition. That's actually from a work from, you know, 10 years before by a composer named Astor Piazzolla, Piazzolla called uh, Sweet Punta del Este. And it's basically a tango, right? So he is an Argentinian composer, I think, and, and cr- had created this film. And I think Gilliam listened to it or Buckmaster listened to it and went, yep, that works. Slap it in there. Cool. Slap it. Production design is the one of the, the last above the line things I'm going to talk about because, like you said, the aesthetic here is slop aesthetic, mm-hmm. um, which Gilliam loves and put Jeffrey Beecroft to work on it. Beecroft is the Dances with Wolves guy. He's the bodyguard guy and a bunch of other stuff, but had his work cut out for him, like you said, in redoing prisons and power plants and whatever else. I mean, I don't know what you even call. I mean, I guess you'd call it junkyard maximalism. Like, I don't know what. Like, <laughs> junkyard maximalism is That's an excellent really clear plastic. Nice. That's really good. Clear plastic tubes of goo. <laughs> the whole, at the very, very beginning you were saying that nobody else has emulated this aesthetic and number one it's because it's awful but <laughs> somebody else did emulate this aesthetic and it's every album cover from the That's late true. 90s with yeah. that weird fisheye looking nine straight inch nails kind of thing yeah but just that weird you know how oh, every yeah. matchbox 20 how every music video in the 90s had that weird round aesthetic yep. super sh- it was so and all the rappers were inside a cheese grater yeah yeah, yeah like and, or, silver or tube. bouncing around in a void in no. space somewhere. <laughs> like, why? It's why? also kind of grungy and kind of reminds me of like Tool. And- yes. Yeah. yes, absolutely. Okay. To wrap up this bit so we can actually talk about the movie, I'm going to do what I have done every episode. I'm going to try to continue to do, which is my special recognition for somebody who doesn't get to get mentioned very often when we talk about movies. For this movie, I am picking the onset animal wrangler. The per- because in this Tough movie, job. there are a lot of animals and they are zooish in nature. I've got a good animal story from the trivia here. The tiger that they had, apparently they kept it in a trailer and some local like teens tried to rob the trailer that the tiger was in and it swiped at them and they found these like kids crying in a corner <laughs> as a tiger had cornered them. <laughs> and they said, an actual 12 months. <laughs> so uh, the Thanks. tiger saved the day. Nice job, tiger. The cool coordinator for that tiger, I am assuming, as well as a lot of the other animals on set, and uh, you're going to forgive me for pronouncing your name, is Ernie Carpelis, K-A-R-P-E-L-E-S. Ernie seems to be, uh, as I am reading about him, a location scout in a lot of instances, but also seems to do some on-set animal wrangling and wrangled for movies like Goodfellas and The Cotton Club and Moonstruck. What and I was animals try- are in Goodfellas? That's what I was trying to think, too. Like, what mo- what animals are there? But apparently there was at least one. Cher. Joe Pesci. <laughs> Just Joe Pesci Cher was not in Goodfellas. <laughs> not the version I saw. Well, she was wrangled out of the shot. <laughs> because Thanks she was well wrangled. <laughs> well, good for Carpanus. That's awesome. I don't know if we said his name right. Carpanus? No, I'm Car- pretty sure that's Car- not right. Car- so I was just trying to give oh, this guy some I- recognition and Fabian's adding extra anus to his last name. This is brutal. I don't like his mouth. It's very Carpanus. <laughs> well, on that pass. note, we're going to move into talking about the plot of this film. You know where it came from you know how it got made sort of and now we're going to talk about our feature presentation (laughs) 
Our feature presentation is, of course, the 1995 movie 12 Monkeys. As always, we're going to spoil it. And there's a lot of twists and turns in this film. So if you have not seen 12 Monkeys, A, why are you listening? And B, go watch it now. The movie, not the TV show, because that's terrible. This movie starts and will end with a flashback. And it is going to start and end with the eyes of somebody. And that somebody is a child who we will soon find out is named Cole. And he's watching some stuff play out in what appears to be an airport. Yeah, I mean, and it does start also with a little title crawl, giving us some information about the background there, saying that 5 billion people will die in 1997, which is a bold claim when you're making a movie in 1995. <laughs> yeah, and how, and how is the title crawl styled? Oh, it looks like Luke Skywalker's targeting screen <laughs> on the X-Wing. <laughs> it's that green text. Oh, yeah. It's the opening of Hunt for Red October. It's yeah. like yeah, it's coming through is, on the crappy screen. Yeah. Which then you never see that black on green thing ever no. again. Like, that's the no. only time. So it feels like it was added later as like a post-production fix. And no one was typing with the green on that's black true. text in 1996. Like, that's there true. There was no, why that? Well, why? but what about that's in 20... 20- you know it's the future. <laughs> it's the future and all they could find was an Apple IIe. Yeah. And that's the only <laughs> The only <laughs> working computer. those computers could take a beating. That's true. Well, I'm sure we'll get to this later, but I read that in designing the future sets, they deliberately chose not to use any materials made in 96. They didn't want to make it look like there was anything available beyond 96 because it needed it to look gritty and I want to kill it. Anyway, sorry. (laughs) The young boy is played by an actor named, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his last name, but Joseph Melido Melito, who, and I'm sorry, Joseph, Gilliam at the end of all of this ended up not really loving. He doesn't like anybody. Who does this he like? This is true. <laughs> it's true. Why is true. he, probably, why is he th- doing this? He only likes Madeline Stowe, I well, guess. The reason why he started out doing puppets and animation yeah, yeah. is only to do in your reluctantly went into making films with Paper actual cutouts. Yeah. yeah, He got cast because he could squint his eyes like Bruce Willis. Yes. That's that's why he got yeah. cast. And He, he, he doesn't he, even squint them. <laughs> he does one time. They we should... see them like wide-eyed blue eyes. Uh-huh. All right, kid, can you give me a real <laughs> rectal mouth? I gotta see if you look Look like Bruce Willis. <laughs> he is watching in whatever this airport situation is. This scene go down that is going to replay over and over and over again in various ways throughout the movie. In this first instance, what he sees is, from his perspective, kind of a long-haired guy in a Hawaiian shirt who is being gunned down in this airport, shot in the back. The guy is holding a pistol, which you're assuming that's why he's being shot in the airport. And there is a woman in a red dress, a blonde woman in a red dress who is running after him and kind of reaching out her arm and screaming no, and you assume that she knows who this person is. And both of their faces are obscured by their hair for the most part. When he hits the ground, he reaches up, he kind of touches her face. It's a tender moment. You assume that both of these people are together and that's the vision. And a lot of this is straight from La Jete. Like it's exactly the same, except I don't think she's running after him. She's like waiting for him at the end of the corridor, but it's the same thing guy running getting knocked down except the gun adds a little extra context of why he's being killed and can i do like major major plot spoiler at this point because as a person who just watched this movie for the first time at one o'clock in the morning this opening sequence after the credits was the first thing that made me heave a big sigh and go oh god this is so tiresome because just something about the way that it's shot oh the man is obscured we're not supposed to know who he, it's him it's him. he's watching himself die mm. he's watching himself <laughs> i agree so like, i, I remember already know it this being... and now i have two hours to go cool <laughs> i do remember it being like more mysterious when i first watched it but i just think so many movies have done this kind of yeah. thing now it's 
it's not it's not new or interesting and you can you can guess it immediately and, and even willis has kind of done an iteration of this with looper yes yeah, absolutely like, <laughs> he goes back and they should give the kid the fake lips <laughs> like, god like joseph gordon levitt no yeah. it is more of a testament to how good la Jete is because la Jete, you don't see it coming even re-watching it after 20 years or whatever not seeing it i'm like oh man they handled that so well it's so poetic and artfully done but i agree completely with charlotte that it was just clumsy in the way it was handled in 12 monkeys yeah but i would argue too that even if you do know it you know i've seen this movie a hundred times if you do know it it almost doesn't matter because it's not who that is at the end which you're going to figure out it's how they get to that point that to me is the more interesting piece of the film yeah and they also i mean we'll get to this later but they do throw in the kind of third act twist to change it around a fair amount and that i think keeps it from being totally stale but yeah i i agree yeah and they do some stuff throughout the movie where every time he has that memory it's a little bit different Mm -hmm. when they're talking about the unreliability of memory which is fine which is also interesting because this puts it you know in the same year we talked about the usual suspects where you have an unreliable narrator which is one of the first major uses of an unreliable narrator in you know that time period and this is an unreliable memory um, sort of a thing and so which is serving as the narration basically to us as the audience usual suspects is one of those where the unreliable narrator in my opinion makes it one you can't really rewatch because it's so fun on the first time you see it to have that twist and then when you watch it again you're like oh wait none of this happened (laughs) this is all made up like this is just like it was all a dream as the movie and you're like oh i don't watching this has no interest anymore yeah did anybody else see Sane Elsewhere back in the 80s? I, no. I remember it. I never watched it, but I did oh, watch yeah. the ending one where it's like With a snow. The, there, Everything was happening oh, in the yeah. mind oh, of a child like and it was a snow yeah. globe. The horrific. Tommy Westfall universe. Horrific. Yes. That vision is coming. You know, we said this was a young kid, right? So that kid's name is Cole. The adult Cole wakes up from this vision and he is immediately and we are all immediately thrust into this futury, awful thing. Prison, yeah. Lots of cages, lots of people screaming, lots of sparks and whatever. This has been his nightmare and he's waking up in the future. You know, The Matrix, I think, took some cues from this and uh, feels very much like a continuation of the same aesthetic from Brazil, where it's all pipes and tubes and cages and yelling and, you know, it's very unpleasant to be in. Wakes up in a hammock made out of burlap, wearing a big jumpsuit made out of clearly like found materials. Yeah. I liked this movie better when it was called The Fifth Element because there's a very similar claustrophobic European sensibility. That mo- It's weird. Mm. It's shot weird. The dialogue's weird. It's just a weird movie, but something about it, maybe it's not quite as grungy. It has shiny moments. Uh, it's just more fun and doesn't take itself as serious. But there are moments where, like, you know, Bruce Willis is shoved in small spaces mm. and never... He, uh, Fifth Element is uh, very campy, he, he know where he yeah. is yes it's very campy i can't watch fifth element oh, it, so it's just like so it. same oh, something you guys are so yeah. wrong <laughs> he wakes up next to his neighbor who is named jose played by john seda jose is going to come back and forth in this movie so remember him he's also in a cage and he's telling cole hey buddy you need to wake up because you've been called as a you know he doesn't use the air quotes but we get it he's a volunteer yeah to go and do something and oh if you go do it maybe you'll get a pardon you just said like make sure you remember him i think they 
are sure you won't remember him, which is why they give him that really weird, fake, very obviously phony scar on his face. Because yeah. they're like, no one's going to remember this guy when he comes back in the last five minutes of the movie. Like, do something weird to his head so we all know who he is. Uh, Cole does not believe there's going to be a pardon. Yeah, he's watching the other bodies get pulled out of cages by hooks. He's like, no one is getting out of this situation right. in a yeah. good place. Yeah, and says, you know... Worst he, the, claw machine. Right, as he drops them every time and tries to pick them right. up. Yeah. He tells Jose... You know what the word is around the uh, campfire that no one who goes out there comes back or if they come back, they come back messed up. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're they're hanging out on the fifth floor or whatever in some loony bin. And Jose doesn't believe that. You know, he's sure that there's good stuff along there. And Cole is then lifted from his cage and taken to be a volunteer. Insists he did not volunteer. The guy says to the effect it doesn't matter. Then we cut to Cole getting dressed in a head to toe clean suit with as much just like latex pulled over his skin as you possibly can. He looks like a Luke Skywalker themed condom. Like what the hell is this outfit? (laughs) long time ago in an anus far, far, far away. away. One man was wrapped in latex and sent out into the a snow. snowy and deserted Philadelphia to it's- fight a bear. <laughs> and collect Madagascar hissing cockroaches. Yeah. And golden orb weavers, yeah. uh, neither of which is native to Philadelphia. In the just middle FYI. of winter. In the yeah. middle of winter. Yeah. I felt bad for the bugs. Yeah, I'm like, yeah I was like, what are they? they don't want to be. These are tropical animals. <laughs> the suit that he's in is basically like, do you remember like from the early 2000s, the sort of clear raincoat look oh, yeah, yeah. that yeah. chicks would wear to the club? Like, it's that. They even mention it in the movie when he time travels back to 1990. One of the detectives is like, we found this guy where one of those clear dresses that the chicks wear to the clubs. So it's like, I don't think they were doing, were they doing that in 90? I don't remember. So he's got a suit. He's got a case of some sort. He's being disinfected. This is a thing that's going to happen a few times. In this case, at least he's clothed when he's being disinfected, I think, in this one. No, is it not? Is this the other one? When When he comes back. back. Yeah. Yeah. I think Bruce Willis got paid by the number of times someone scrubbed his ass with a push broom. Because it happens too much. I counted. It only happens twice. That's but twice that's too many. That's two times too many. But yeah. in quick succession. So you begin to wonder if this is going to be a motif. <gasps> I was like, please, no, I don't, I don't want a montage. Forgive me, Josh. The plot is not getting advanced from this discussion. It's not gonna. It's, no. it's your time, not mine. Okay. <laughs> He's in whatever the raincoat is, right? With his case. He is sent immediately up to the surface above wherever it is that he is, which turns out to be, again, abandoned factory. The abandoned factory budget on this was very big very high also they did fake snow apparently that was actually made of soap Mm. no why and no budget (laughs) terry gilliam hated the fake snow you'll be surprised to hear (laughs) (laughs) one of the many things he hated in this movie but apparently they said if you let it sit for a while it started like when you first put it out it just looked like soap bubbles on the ground and if you let it sit for a while it started to look like actual snow and then if you let it sit for longer than that you slipped and fell and there were lawsuits (laughs) and the tiger clean it up the tiger got a pulled hamstring and then yeah He's in Philadelphia. We can tell that by the city hall, the recognizable city mm-hmm. hall out front. But it is a abandoned and very, very blue filtered uh, yeah. Philadelphia. Now, I think this is a sufficiently eerie looking post-apocalyptic world. It's a good setup for your wasteland without having to go too crazy with it. A low and budget post-apocalyptic world. He's trying to collect the spiders and do all the other stuff, mm-hmm. but can't keep doing that because... Uh, there is a larger animal behind him, a giant 
grizzly bear or something that yep. also is running around Philadelphia, which should not be there, which is the start of us seeing a lot of animals around that should not be in Philadelphia and are running loose and seem to be the only things that are running loose in town. First time I saw this, I just assumed that after society collapsed, they got out of the zoo. Yeah. But then later you realize it was all part of the, the actual part plot. Of the plan. Part and that's the end of the episode, folks. Thanks for coming. <laughs> um, no, he's, he's running around town. Part of running around town is he ends up in what looks to be like an abandoned department store. I'm not quite sure we had those still in the 90s. Here but. is my premise. I think the decor of this abandoned department store means the technical this is a Christmas movie, just like Die Hard. Oh, and so true. new true. holiday tradition. The words Merry Christmas appear more than once. <laughs> they in the do. That is, that is two do. questionable Christmas movies that Bruce, Bruce Willis has been in. This has more snow. Yeah. This is this is more arguably snow. more of a Christmas movie than Die Hard. It, we should just call it now. This is the new it's a Christmas, Christmas classic. As part of being in this department store, he sees a couple of things that may come back later, so remember them. So he sees a big angel statue, and he sees some uh, pigeons or whatever flying off through the skylight of this abandoned department store. Okay, great. Outside, he's digging through the snow, and under the snow... And we know that it's important because we get that music, right, the accordion stuff. He finds a sign of a sort spray painted that says it has it has a big logo, which we don't know what that is yet. But it has the words we did it on it. And all of this is laying underneath, again, giant lion running around the top of the city hall. Yeah. So I would be interested to see more of the underground society. All we ever see is the prison. And I mean, obviously it looks like garbage, but like, is the rest of the world or all the rest of the people living in the same way? Or is it just the prisoners? Because we really only see this one little section of whatever is left of humanity. It might, yeah. might add a little more world building. You get more of that in the 28 minute short film that this is based on than the two hour movie. That's true. Is it only Philadelphia, too? That's the part yeah. we never see anywhere else. And, mm, you know, that's true. Who knows? Who can say? We're back underground, though, in that little world of whatever it is. And now we get the Bruce Willis butt scrubbing scene. There it is. <laughs> now we all get our money's worth. <laughs> Do you think Gilliam was screaming, that's it, wash your face, wash your face? <laughs> <laughs> Brush your teeth, Bruce. <laughs> very possible. Our very scrubbed up Calgon Bruce Willis is taken before a council of a sort, right? There's a dais set up in a weird kind of steampunky looking room. Bunch of people, scientists they look like, I think because of the lab coats, uh, sitting up there and questioning him about his time above ground. And they put all the people's faces on that sphere and stick it in his face. And I mean, Terry Gilliam has a whole thing where he talked about why he did that, but he basically was using it as a metaphor for like modern communications where you add more ways to see and talk to people, but you somehow feel more disconnected from them. A really great way to interrogate somebody yes, if exactly. you want to, for sure. You want to make sure that they can't see you or understand <laughs> what you're asking them. Right. Make sure that you have one camera lens that's just up your eyeball <laughs> and you want to display them in an orb full of CRTs. Yeah. What I love about this is like you're beginning to like because we're we're forced into Cole's perspective of how he sees the world. This is like one of those moments where you're really like, you cannot trust what is real and what is not, and what can be what is like reliable information that you're getting from these people because they're all being filtered through the orb of odd screens. <laughs> speak to the orb. Don't speak to me. I don't allow anyone to speak but to me. But they're right down there. No, the table speak to the orb. I can see you. No, right you can't. There. <laughs> 
initially he's in front of the panel. Yeah, he's in a normal talking distance. And then they and then, strap him to the wall. And they send him up 12 him feet in the air. 30 feet in the air before the orb. I don't like, speak to anyone who's at my eye line. They have to be <laughs> like suspended a, from the wall. It's like a county fair ride that they <laughs> strap him into and hoist him up. It's also, though, this is probably, I don't know if you would agree, this is maybe the most Gilliam-esque moment oh, of yeah. the movie. Yes. No, In this case is... you did not know whose movie you were yes. watching, <laughs> you we're going to just, like, just stylize this for no reason just to make it weird. Yeah, it was, ba- it like, was basically like a, a cutout scene from Brazil that yes. they just brought over. Yeah. Yep. While Bruce Willis is there in the high chair way up in the sky, <laughs> he's... He's re- there's like newspaper clippings and stuff on the wall. And this is where beyond that crazy font awful thing at the beginning that we as an audience get some sense of what's going on because some of the newspaper clippings are talking about a virus where there was no cure. And there was a scientist who, who says it's too late for a cure. And if you are paying attention, you notice that the scientist in that picture is Christopher Plummer, who we will figure out who that is later. Mm-hmm. One of the scientists on this dais plays a more prominent role than the rest of them. She in the credits is identified as the astrophysicist among them. It's never said in the movie who any of these people are, but um, she's played by the actress Carol Florence and tells Cole, you know, Cole, the reason why you are here is because you are a good observer. You are someone that we can trust to go up and tell us how things are and, and be accurate. We have this new program that's starting where whatever you do can help return human beings to the surface of the earth. And so there we're we're connecting this virus article on the wall to, oh, okay, that's why we're all underground is there was this virus and that's why we're living there. That doesn't make sense. Sorry. They need him to go and fix it somehow because they've tried a bunch of people before and all of those people were quote unquote unstable. Yeah. And you immediately are wondering like, this guy is the stable one. He's the one that you're like the one whose ass you were scrubbing a second ago. Uh Like, it's like, Okay. I just want to know, how does being underground help? Now that we've actually had to deal with a virus, we know that going underground would not actually do anything. How does that help? Because above ground is is where the virus is, and it's too big to get through the doorway. It craves the sun, Charlotte. (laughs) Heat rises, maybe viruses rise. They're all just now in an enclosed space with one another. They're probably all the ones who are just immune to it, so they could just so go live up on the earth. they could just go live up yeah. there. What's the problem? It's not a nuclear winter. I mean, if the ending Five is correct. Five million people died from a bad cough. Yeah, now if, go up and eat whatever's left. If the ending is to be believed, that guy opened the vial in the airport, so Cole's already been exposed to it. Yeah. So, I mean, he got the purest form of it, like 10 He's feet from the, the, the Why thing. Why didn't they just culture his blood? He, he can was just right go there live, at ground zero. He could go live with the lion. Also... You don't need the initial strain of the... You've got the latest, greatest strain of the virus. That's the one you want to cure. It's the one everyone's got now. Why don't you just take their blood from right now? We're going to talk about that. It's dumb. We're all out of syringes. The pure form. Right. Good question. And that is actually a thing. And so no. we, we will discuss this. I can't wait. Apparently, he's the most stable out of all the the guys down there, and so they need him. And so, okay, great. So we land in 1990. We're with Catherine Rayleigh, played by Madeline Stowe, who is a psychiatrist, and she's sitting in this art lecture, and she gets a page, which she has to go answer and annoys the hell out of everyone around her. It's classic to hear the beeper sound, though. You know, we should bring them back, I think. They're nice and annoying. Why did you turn into Donald Trump with your inflection there for a second? You gotta bring back the beepers. (laughs) Everyone says they're no good, but they're good. <laughs> My mouth is a wreck. <laughs> That's actually true. That is. Off to the jail she goes, but she's over there because she has been called to a patient that has been brought into the jail who seems to have some mental issues, and she's the person on call for this sort of thing. And guess what, everybody? 
It's coal. Mm. So in 1990, somehow, our coal is now in a jail and is being held under watch so that the psychiatrist can come and find him. I feel like they didn't do as much as they could have to indicate where he was supposed to go so that we know it got yeah. messed up. Like, it takes a long time to get to the, especially since they drug him up, like, immediately. You don't understand that he's in the wrong time for, it feels like too long. Yeah. They don't know who he is in 1990. The cops don't because, of course, he has no record. They don't have fingerprints on him. They've got nothing. And so Catherine shows up to find him kind of in this drugged out state and he's drooling and he's mumbling to himself. And she calls him by his given name, which somehow they have figured out, which is James. And he corrects her immediately. Nobody ever calls me James. Mm-hmm. Can we just talk about the setup for that, though? Like sure. she's walking in girl boss style, like in her black looking mini. Gorgeous. Looking great. No bra, just my ad. And the Sorry. guy, <laughs> the, the handler is like, uh, no, you got to understand. He he took down like seven guys and he wrestled a gorilla and he punched me in the liver. And she's like, and she, and she's just like let me in. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm me like, add. what's happening here? I can How does actually he have talk super... to him. I can fix him. <laughs> That's why I become a psychiatrist, which I want to, which she repeatedly why. says psychiatrist. Yeah, it makes Psychi- me feel like she's not a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> she says psychiatrist. There's anyway. Sorry, go on. But why does he have superhuman strength all of a sudden? You I make don't it out to know. Be like... <laughs> I don't know. And then it it does not come into play later when he gets like Never. jumped by all the asylum guards. He just gets taken down, and you're like, oh, here comes Bruce Willis. He's gonna kick some. No, he no. no, he just got his ass kicked. Yeah, was it sent to post-apocalyptic, like you know, judo school or something? <laughs> yeah. Taught him to. Do he was such sleeping things. in the burlap hammock for all those years. Yes. Really toughened up his arms. Yeah. yeah. For a reason that she can't articulate, he looks familiar to her. Yes. Hey, you look like somebody I've met before. Were you ever a patient at County? No, he wasn't. Were you ever a child I looked at from across an airport <laughs> in the future? <laughs> He's very agitated, as we all are at this point, um, and says, look, I'm, I can't be here. I'm supposed to be gathering information. I need to go and do my thing so um, I can fulfill my mission. But I also know maybe I don't need to be doing that because I can't help anyone. Yeah. What's done is done, and I can't do anything about that. This whole movie would have been fixed if it, there would have been no movie if Bruce Willis had just had the wherewithal to lie yes. when he showed up. What are you doing here, sir? I'm going uh, to the I'm... Howard Johnson Inn. We'll <laughs> <laughs> Forget... be at the Holiday Inn in Paramus. <laughs> my grandmother's very good old butt scrub. and dying. Right. I fell down I... on my way to a rave. <laughs> <For> <laughs> Yeah. So this is my girlfriend's dress. I <laughs> It goes from this very dire description of all the things that he can't help to remarking about how he loves the air yeah. in this prison where he's this cell yeah. that he is. Like, it's so fresh, there's no germs, which yeah. is of course a normal thing. Why do they keep calling say. him germs? <laughs> Who calls him germs? Which she questions him about, well, why would you think there are germs in the air, Cole? Yeah. Right? Like, it's to her, through her lens, it looks like this is a sign of men- mental instability is right. he thinks there are germs in the air. This mm-hmm. is something I noticed, though. I mean, and I think this is because it's Terry Gilliam and he likes suffering. Like, he seems to en- enjoy it. Another, he doesn't enjoy anything. No. Other than yeah, other than this. Other yeah. than this. But, you know, another filmmaker would have given you a moment where Bruce Willis's character got to enjoy something he never got to see yeah. underground, like a sunset or the ocean. Or anything. Sure. And he deliberately keeps him away from those things for the entire film. He literally never, even as he's dying, he doesn't get like, oh, there's the beautiful sea that I, <laughs> like nothing. He just lived underground and he came out and he wore a wig and he got shot. He does get that one moment where he's splashing in the creek. That's true. And he ate a spider, but it's in the dark and it's snowing. <laughs> um... 
I think, you know what? I just stumbled upon why Terry Gilliam. (laughs) His entire aesthetic sensibility is that he's miserable all the time and he's going to make it our problem. Yes. I want you to join me in the pit of despair. (laughs) That's all it is. The reason why he thinks there are germs in the air in his mind is it's October of 1996, Mm. which she corrects him. No, it isn't. This is April. It's, 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 it's April it's October. of 19... No, right? Yeah, it's not October, it's April. Right, of right. 1990. Oh, okay, well, then it's April of 1996. No, it's not 1996, it's April of 1990. And oh, no. we understand then, okay, well, he's been shot to the wrong place, and, and he's six years I don't think we do life. yet. I think it takes a little longer before it finally becomes clear that, oh, he was trying to go to 96. And I think part of it is they don't, they're not very clear about when he's from, when the event takes place, and what he's supposed to do. Because of the strange transition between the future and the past where they just fade out and then he's in jail like the second time you see him go through the time machine the first time it's just like you're about to be sent to this uh, different time let's take a commercial break that, and we'll that be part right does back. feel like there was something else shot there yes, and absolutely. they pulled it out yeah yeah um and they do have a back and forth where he's saying you know this is the past no this is the present no i i come from the future well the future hasn't happened there is this you know yeah. who's mm-hmm. on first between both of them that happens it's very tiresome and, well, we and he's drooling the whole time and which he's makes drooling the whole, not just drooling like he's KYing. absolutely everywhere and i want it to stop well it's it's done now <laughs> he's dragged outside he got shot in a mustache <laughs> He's dragged outside. This is he does get to see some sunshine because he's you know squinting into the sunshine. It's the first time he's ever seen oh, yeah. it. Basically, he's been underground, but he's dragged out, thrown in a truck, and driven across town by some cops and dumped off at the institution where he is basically put through the welcome uh, ceremony, such as it is, by a guard named Billings, played by Roswell Young. Oh yeah, he's stripped, deloused, and scrubbed again, and. You could be forgiven for thinking this is going to become a visual mm-hmm. motif. He's where getting we'll see paid. The bare ass of Bruce Willis getting scrubbed by another much larger man, and that will be the part. That will be the movie. Yeah, and every twenty minutes or so, <laughs> take a little break. This is not the only ass we see in this it's movie. True. Yes. There's, there's more to come. There's more to come. Stay tuned. <laughs> he keeps telling Billings, "I need to make a phone call. If I can make a phone call, I can make this right." And Billings, who's kind of this big guard, says, "What you need to do, Jimbo, is calm your butt." down Mm -hmm. and establishes himself as an authority figure. James is basically back in prison in in effect as he was at the beginning of the movie. There's a lot of human rights violations going on. Definitely so. And that part is realistic. Oh, yeah. Yes. And he's escorted into the bowels of this institution and into this kind of overly bright, very, you know, white walled, but peeling paint white walled common room that is just full of all of the people you would expect to be in an institution of this level. That's something I did not remember and rewatching it. I'm like, man, this really is like a cartoon of an asylum. Like we've got like, you know, every stock character from a mental institution here and they're all in the room, like one inch apart from each other. I mean, I get what he's going for, but it's a lot. And watching it from a 2023 sensibility made me a little uncomfortable. Oh yeah, it's it's so so hard. It was hard to watch in 1995 and it's harder to watch in 2023 because all you can think about is like oh oh no that's why, not like, how. how do they treat human beings this way even yeah. if like you know they do have problems that may have gotten them in this place you yeah. know it's like yeah it, think about it this way though it's the 90s and this is a terry gilliam movie that's yes. true and so terry gilliam movies are basically animation come to it's life it's a caricature yes, right no it i understand yes. oh, yeah. he's like doing a shorthand so that you get right away hey this is an asylum yes it's 
claustrophobic. The people have no agency. You're stuck. Right. You know? and, and tonally, if he would have gone more realistic or if he would have gone darker or anything like that, it doesn't work as well with what's coming. Right. Which is the... More sci-fi. More sci-fi. Right. Correct. More sci-fi stuff. Sure. And, and all of that starts because Billings, Billings doesn't want to take care of, you know, this guy any longer than he has to. And so he dumps off Cole with a very hyperkinetic, schizophrenic type character played by Brad Pitt, whose name is Jeffrey Gomes. Now, did they do something to his eyes in this? It I think like they it. did. I think There's so. Something yeah, going had, on. They had painted contact lenses that make him look like one of his eyes is always looking in the wrong direction. That's yes. what it is. That's okay. why yes. he looks extra disturbing. Yeah. And my favorite, like a, a bit of trivia that I read about how they tried to get Brad Pitt to act authentically, like, you know, twitchy, was they took his cigarettes away oh, for the entire day before filming. So he was like, you know, going through nicotine withdrawal <laughs> while he was acting this way. I mean, you know, he could have also just watched Quentin Tarantino for a half hour and this imitated him. Because yes. That's the We're just, we're like, we're like here, man, you know? Gomes loves that he has this responsibility, right? He's the guy who can run the show for a minute for Cole and takes him on the grand tour around the, the common the room. room, showing him, hey, here's all the people, here's the games. The games are very important, but don't play the games because the games are tranquilizers and that's how they get you not to pay attention. Know your doses, know your doses, right? That kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Ask if he's been drugged. Do you know what they gave you? Make sure you understand that. And Cole the entire time still has the same need as when he walked through the door, right? Jeffrey's need is to become indispensable in Cole's life to some degree, like he gets his moment to be president. And Cole's Thing that he needs is to make a phone call and he's insisting that the whole way through the tour one of the things that i did like at this point is that willis takes it back a step he's not just constantly reacting to everything in fact he's doing the opposite he's observing everything and it helps put you the audience member in that room with him for a yes. minute like i don't know i'm just in shock right now i don't know how i got here i don't know who these people are there's this thing that I've got to do that I can't do yet, so I guess I'll just watch this Woody Woodpecker cartoon or whatever's on mm, at the right. moment. I think they do a good job of creating that claustrophobia of being wrongfully imprisoned. Like, this is one of the more effective scenes. It also is one of the more unpleasant scenes. Yes. Like, watching it, I had to stop in the middle to go do something and come back. And I'm like, oh, God, I got to go back to this. It oh. took me, honestly, it, it took me four hours to watch no. this movie. I had to take a half hour, like, breaks every half hour and just, like, it's hard. The camera's it's also intentionally like tilted the oh yeah the, 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 the amount of <laughs> it's like being in holland it's so much dutch so, so much the... double triple quadruple dutch charlotte mentioned the cartoons that are playing on the screen that they kept cutting to and i did appreciate that they kind of it, it felt like a nod a gilliam-esque kind of nod to the absurdity of how they staged yeah this sort of insane asylum because it was very arch and of course Pit is very entertaining to watch, even though it's a bit offensive, maybe, <laughs> a, a, a portrayal. Yes. But he's so animated. He's very endlessly interesting to watch. Yes. Um, but I did appreciate how they kept cutting to these cartoon images. You know, the movie it reminds me of sometimes is Dark City. Oh my God. I want to cover that on this show so movie. badly. I love that film. <laughs> yeah. Like that, It's another Great. one where like they, they just take the stylized elements and ramp it to 11 and it either really works for you or really doesn't yep. depending on how much you want to buy into the world. You know, This scene in re-watching this Again, like the first time you watch this, maybe even the first five times you watch this, what you get most of it, at least for me, was just like you said, Nick, the feeling of insanity, the feeling of like being contained, the just just the nutsness of it, right? Like right. all of it. 
And the more I watch it and the more I sit and listen to Brad Pitt, the more you get really the layout of his theory of society right. that ultimately allows him to become what he's going to become because he's talking about, you know, Cole saying, I need to make a phone call and Jeffrey saying, no, you can't do that because A, impossible. B, if you talked on the phone, insanity can spread, you know, like a, like virus. a virus. It, it can go everywhere. Mm -hmm. I'm here because of the system, right? We're all here because of the system and then goes off on a rant about capitalism, right? right. If, you, if you don't conform or consume, then you're considered crazy and all of that, which at this moment is just feels like nonsense coming out of Gomes is not nonsense. It is the thing that is actually in his head that will that's his, that, manifesto. That shapes, that's his yeah. manifesto it's his ethos in telling all of this we're getting the information but we're getting it from gomes in an increasingly elevated way so he's getting too excited this is a characteristic of jeffrey gomes yeah. has to be calmed down jeffrey you need to chill oh, okay sorry about that i was just getting excited showing cole all the games i think though the energy that brad pitt has in this scene is similar to the energy of a lot of the movie because it's all it all feels like you're kind of rushing and stuttering and moving as fast as you can from dilapidated room to dilapidated room and, you know, hard to breathe sometimes because it's just go, go, go through this, you know, gauntlet of misery. And so he is very much in keeping with the theme of the movie, but I think it is also a lot. It's a lot. The scene is capped off in a couple of different ways. And one of them is with Brad Pitt telling this story about a patient who, you know, there's, there's been this TV on the whole time in the common room who wanted to watch shows that had already been on, mm -hmm. wanted, wanted to turn back time so that he could watch shows after they had already aired and tells Cole, now that's mentally ill, right? Being able to think about that. And the other is Cole being approached by uh, a patient named L.J. Washington, um, played by the actor Frederick Strother, who talks about mental divergence. Yeah. And I, this was one of the few characters I just really liked. I mean, he's only on there for a hot second. He's like, look, I'm not really an alien. It's in my mind palace where right. I think I'm yes. an alien. But I, I know that I'm not. And, and as, soon, as soon as I really know that I'm not, I'll be able to get out of here. And he's one of the few people in the movie that has like a gentle energy yes, to him and is not just like a sharp edge. You can like take man a breath yeah. while you watch. And he even like, kind of puts his head on his shoulder mm -hmm. for a minute. He's, I think he's wearing fuzzy slippers. And yeah, the, it pans, it goes down from like the tuxedo down to seeing like the fuzzy bunny slippers. Like, oh, he's also got his share of <laughs> He's not, he's, he's got problems, but he, he's working on it. He's working on it. He's his mind palace it. is getting cleaned out as we speak. <laughs> Cole is taken from this common room and put in another situation where he is in front of a dais of people. This time, though, instead of being the scientist and the astrophysicist or whatever, these are all the white-coated doctors from the asylum. Now, this here is one of the most obvious bits of fantasy sci-fi because they have a tin of those Danish butter cookies and it's not full of sewing supplies. <laughs> and I don't know. That was where you fell out of the I'm movie. like, this, you know, I can't, buy I can't this. get into this anymore. And as the last panel had one person that stuck out from the rest of them and asked all the questions, questions this one does as well and the person on this panel is named dr fletcher and is played by surprise surprise to me when i first watched this frank gorshin who is the riddler from the old batman I show didn't even recognize him yeah <laughs> and he is trying to question cole about okay tell us why you're here again and, and all of this and cole is trying to get across look this place that you have me now this is a place for crazy people i'm not crazy i am here to come back in time to save people from the army of the 12 monkeys who are going to release a virus and kill 5 billion people in 1996 and 97 and about only 1% of us are going to survive and we're all going to go live underground. That's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. And to Charlotte's point, he should have just said, I, I was mistaken. <laughs> yes, you have the, yeah, you have the wrong guy. 
So are you here to save us is the question that's posed to him. He has this very fatalist view of it. You know, how can I save you? This has already happened. I've just been sent here to observe and to find you know, the pure strain of the virus so that in the future they can do what the scientists do in the future. My job is just to be, I can't change anything. But what I can do is I can prove to you that I'm telling the truth. And the way that I can prove to you that I'm telling the truth is if you'll just let me make that phone call I've been begging you for since I got here, we can straighten this all out. The scientists have a voicemail. I can leave them a voicemail. And there we go. It's all fixed. So they let him, surprisingly. Well, Catherine lets him. Yeah, and I think she, that's why you, you start to warm to her is because you're like, okay, she's actually treating this person like someone who is a person, like, let him do well, the thing. the sense that I got for at least the first half of her entire arc, almost all of her decisions are informed by, let's see what happens. I want to <laughs> see what happens. I think it's just morbid curiosity. I want to know, as a scientist, who does he think he's calling? Yeah. This and, guy reminds me of someone, like, maybe the guy from Die Hard. I don't know who it is, but he <laughs> Christmas really... Christmas movie that I saw <laughs> once a long time ago. It's a holiday classic. They it, eventually spin it into this stupid intrigue of, like, oh, you, rem you remind me of someone and now I'm in love with you or whatever the f <laughs> but it starts off I think as a clinical curiosity mm -hmm. and so they let him call but when he calls it's not picked up by a voicemail it's picked up by this mother with six kids and the kids <laughs> are running crazy and she's like I don't know who the hell you are and I don't have a voicemail and the I have no idea who the army of the 12 monkeys is get off hangs, the counter <laughs> and hangs up the phone on him <laughs> yeah. which is very distressing to Cole yeah until he figures out Oh, wait, I'm in 1990, you said. I was supposed to be here in 1996. They haven't turned the voicemail on yet. That's why we have this problem. And they... <sighs> yeah, podcast listener Charlotte Moore is covering her face, her eyes, and part of her cheek. And rubbing as if to bring the life back to her from the place that Terry Gilliam has tried to send her. It's not even Terry Gilliam. The, the writing in this movie is so bad. And the plotting makes so very little sense. And it comes down to these obnoxious details like, all right, the virus that ended the world, they don't know where that came from. They don't know who's responsible for that. They don't have a guy, but you know what they do have? They have a voicemail that they can go back and set up in 1996. They don't have a guy you can talk to. They don't have a computer you can put data into. They send them back with a phone number. We know what phone numbers are here in 2031. We've got that. And we've got a time machine, but we don't have flat screen TVs. They weren't allowed to be developed. Everything dumb... everything went away in 97. Yeah, there were no flat yeah. screens. Yeah, we were stuck with 90s technology. Forever. I totally agree. Like, this was one of the areas where I was like, wait a minute. It doesn't make Are you any kidding me sense. that the peoples wrote this? I mean, I, th I think the, the voicemail does, like, put a big dent in the believability because... You know, before that, you can believe they are not good at this time travel thing. Like they send him to World War One, they send him in the wrong year. But if if they've been able to set up some sort of communication with the past, then it means that they have they've the ability to be here. So what is what is happening now? So okay, I'm not quite sure when is the right place to break open this discussion, but I I'll I'll do a little it's bit now. of it here the and then we'll now. and then we'll move forward. Yeah. So. There is a whole school of thought that the mission that James Cole was sent on, which was to go and find the pure strain of the virus so that it could be brought back to the future so the scientists could figure out and trace the path of the virus and then right. return all the humans back to the surface, is a lie. Okay. That they are not sending him back for that purpose, that he's being told he's sent back for that purpose. But what he is actually being sent back to do is to set in motion the things that will cause that to happen and... So therefore, along that line, there may be some way to justify things so not like, being perfect. They're like the 
time police keeping things the way they're supposed to be. Something like that. But doesn't that require like going outside the text and coming up with a separate maybe headcanon for why it... Well, maybe, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. Mm. When you hear hooves, just think horses, uh, <laughs> not zebras. I think the answer here is they just didn't think it through. <laughs> well, but I mean, there is... I, I see what the, the thing that you could point to would be the woman on the plane at the end who says she's in, in insurance, right? Correct. They do leave that a little bit up to interpretation. Like, is she going to ensure that that virus does not get out or that it does get out? Correct. Because their future will not exist unless it happens. And I did wonder, I thought, oh, we can discuss that. But if they've already, you know, a whole school of thought, I guess we're late to the No, I, I want I want to discuss that at, once we get to the end, because I, I, I do want to hear thoughts on that. The way that the story gets carried forward is after the voicemail is not there, the flashback returns. And this time it is tweaked just slightly. So we see the airport, we see the long haired guy, you know, getting shot. We see the addition of a new character, which is this ponytailed guy in a yellow jacket who kind of rushes past the young Cole, hey kid, get out of the way, and runs. And the blonde woman who is running after the, the shot guy, her hair suddenly parts, and we see that it is Catherine, mm-hmm. right? Which. We all knew all along, but James now sees as that is Catherine. He's still in the asylum. He is in bed and kind of wakes up in the middle of the night, and he's he's there with Goins. And this is, we mentioned earlier, he's still in his mode of I've got to do this mission. And so he's fine. He finds a spider and doesn't have a place to put the spider. So he swallows it. Also the wrong spider again. <laughs> the look that Brad Pitt gives him when he swallows the spider is excellent. It's just like, a, whoa, what? <laughs> and Gomes goes on with, you know, his school of thought. Hey, you know, everybody thinks that we're kind of, you know, not right. But back in the day, there were these things called germs. And, you know, people said, oh, things flying around in the air. Invisible That's crazy. Thing? Yeah. But it turns out that it wasn't. So we get this intertwining of the mental divergence angle of this thing with the physical virus end of this thing comes together in this scene. And Gomes is, for whatever his reasons are, offering to help James escape. And Gomes himself doesn't escape. His excuse is, I don't want to, I'm, I don't need to escape. My father is very, very powerful. And he's talking to the right people. people. Yeah. yeah. So we get a lot, of, a lot of very effective uh, exposition gets dropped in this little moment. That offer is going to pay off the next day. Mm-hmm. They're back in the common room. The TV is doing what the TV is doing, except this time it's animal testing, you know, documentaries. Ugh, also very hard to watch. Yes. Awful stuff on the TV, right? And there is the sentiment espoused by uh, Cole that, you know, maybe the human race, you know, needs to be wiped off this planet. Like, look how awful all of this is. To which Gomes replies, that's a great idea. I mean, I'm with them. (laughs) (laughs) The idea that he might be responsible for all of it is a good addition, you know. But it does also bring into question, like, what kind of time travel are we doing here? Because it seemed like at the beginning, Cole was talking about it like this is determinative. Like there's no, you can't change what's already happened. But now he just changed what happened, maybe. You know, so what's like now can he change the outcome at the ending? And that's what we'll have to wait. And or see. he reaffirmed what has already happened. Well, yeah, right. and that's the thing. I mean, he, I, I did appreciate that they kept that particular law of time travel if because mm. they're the two thoughts, right? Either you go back in time, you change something, and now you've split off. Your old timeline continues to exist, and now you've created a new parallel reality right. or you have you have to change literally nothing so that you keep the loop um, or that everything you do already happened so it's that's part what of I mean. the loop that's yeah. what i mean you, it, you have to go back and do it because it's already been right, done right. and if you do that with that understanding then you can behave however the hell you want 
You're right. Because, well, I'm here, aren't I? So obviously I've already, everything that I do will have already been done. Yes. Right. So. Which is, you know, a bummer of a school of thought, but it does make for some interesting, tragic irony type moments. Yeah. You know? The TV, as well as the animal testing documentaries, is also playing some things that will come back around. So there's a an ad for Visit the Florida Keys. And they're also playing Monkey Business, right? The, the Marx Brothers film right. uh, on the TV. I said that last night pays off today. And the way it pays off is Cole doesn't really remember the conversation they had because he's kind of been drugged up. Mm -hmm. But Gomes remembers the conversation about escaping. And Gomes has done something about it, which is he's gone and found a key somewhere to the one lock that's on the door to the common room. And he is (gasps) trying to put it into... No, sorry. Oh, no, sorry. Sorry. Go finish your thought. But we have to go back to Brad Pitt's ass. I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. Um, Let us return. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's <laughs> the door, he starts freaking out. Like, oh, there's... No, it's right. in... Go on. Bedrooms. Sorry. He's got a key. He's trying to push it into Cole's hand and is telling him, this is your chance to escape, trying to get that across to this, this very, you know, loopy person and is pushing him towards the door and uses himself as a distraction to get all of the guards coming and trying to contain and constrain him and riling up everybody else in the room and pushing James Cole to the door. And this scene is a, a good representation representation of like what it feels like when you're trying to do something in a dream you know like you're trying to like open a door and nothing works right or you're trying to hit something or kick something and you're like the physics aren't Uh physics i I thought this was a a very suspenseful scene still for a second time it still works and he manages cole does manages to get to this door manages through you know the underwater head that he has to get the key into the lock and, and unlock it and get out now he's out of the common room but he's still got to get somewhere else, including down the elevators or up the elevators or whatever else he does. And there is a moment here that I have never quite put together correctly Mm. in my head why it works this way. Is he gets to the elevators, there's a guard sitting there reading the Weekly World News about Batboy or whatever. I love the Batboy sighting. And Mm. pulls down the paper and sees that it's Cole in a bathrobe and he's a patient. But tells him, you know, oh, elevator number one isn't working. You need to take elevator number two. Basically enabling him to escape. Right. But the first time you see him, it's not that guy. It's one of the guys from the future talking to him, one of the guards from the prison. But then switches back to the other person, you know, at the end. So in that moment, obviously, it feels like the future is trying to help him succeed. Right. right? Or he's so drugged up that he's seeing things that are not happening and yeah. you're not really sure which one it is. And it almost doesn't matter because... The outcome's the same. The yeah. out, well, the outcome's the same. And now we've also had that... We've had this revisitation of this memory that wasn't the first time that we saw it. That all... All that we need to establish is that things are not as Cole is presenting them to us. He is an unreliable narrator. And whether it's because he's drugged and or whether it's because somehow there's some overlap between his present and his future, it's almost irrelevant. The point is that we can't, we don't know that anything that he sees is real. Ooh, Mm -hmm. Ooh, the rain's picked up. The guy that's there, though, if you think about if you you can think about him in two different ways, right? The guard, the guy from the future who pops in, maybe he's either there to help or he's there to keep an eye on Cole. Right. Or both. And so you see depending, him one other time later on yeah. the ele- uh, escalator later. And so therein plays into that. Is he there for the reasons that he thinks he's there for or is he being, you know, led along a path to do something that he's unaware of? He does manage to get into the elevator somehow and escapes to somewhere else. Catherine is called and told, hey, your patient Cole, that guy got out. You need to get down here and and figure out what's going on. Help us out. And the guards managed to eventually corner Cole 
in a hallway. And that's when you think that he's going to beat them all up. And because he's had superhuman yeah. strength and he before. he doesn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, he gets very easily taken down. And does manage to strike the, uh, you know, one of the Aurelius so hard that he, like, is pleading with the others to take him down, take him down. Yeah. And he says he fractures his skull. Yeah. Yeah. And there are more guys in that scene, I think, that there were originally. So maybe, maybe they're in as part of the thing. But the ultimate outcome of that is that they manage to capture him. They manage to drug him again. And they manage to strap him down to a gurney and stow him away in this little holding room For with an no windows. Yet, basically. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of like weird restraining and you know like straight jackets <laughs> and handcuffs. It's all like I, I feel like we Gil- get it, Terry. Gilly's, Gilliam's kind of showing his thing a little bit. Yeah, you know, like, all it's, right. it's his Tarantino foot shot. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. look. <laughs> I'm for it, but like, come on, let's dial it back. Do it back. on your own time. <laughs> it is not very long after that that Catherine is talking, you know, back to the Riddler, and you know he's basically questioning her judgment. You know, your dude, he should have been strapped down. We should not have let him go. You said he was fine. He isn't fine, and that is on you. This was a good writing moment. We cut to that scene in Media Res, basically, yes. where the Riddler is saying, well, you're being so defensive. You're being hysterical. Why don't you just admit that you made a bad call here? And she says, I'm not being defensive. Mm-hmm. But sure, I made a bad call. What else would you like to talk about? And he's like, see, this crazy woman. And then <laughs> it's, it's just like, she's literally, dude, she's being she's your, super calm. <laughs> she's so calm right now. And she's admitting to you that she up and she just wants to move the conversation onto the next thing that we're supposed to do now. And her perception's getting questioned too. Yeah. She's gonna like, you know, give her fertile ground yes. to like, you know, grow up into buying into yes. Pulse's story later. And you see yeah. everyone else at this hospital seems to be antagonistic towards the people in it, except for her, which also kind of puts her on the same side as him. It makes it a shorter distance to travel later. Yes. And they don't get that long to talk about her and her poor judgment, (laughs) according to him, because things are going haywire up where Cole is supposed to be. He's not there anymore. He has escaped, and everybody is now wondering where the hell this guy has gone, and so off they go running to look for him. Yeah, and we get in the room, and the doctor does this tongue-clacking thing that's very upsetting. It's like, come on, man. Stop, the- stop it. Why does everyone in this movie have to have a weird tick? Why does everyone <laughs> have ass question. face? Yeah, yeah. so he's disappeared, and uh, you know, Dr. Fletcher just looks up at the fan and says, perhaps he climbed up and escaped through the ventilation system. And closed it behind him while being... And restarted being- the fan, yeah. which is still actively ventilating. Mm-hmm. And then there's a time jump, yep. which is kind of interesting. I think it's a time jump yes. where he's, you know, he has been strapped down to this gurney. He's been in this room. We have just gotten a vision of how he might have climbed into the ducting. And we come back to see him laying on the gurney, but starting to hear a voice. And I'm it's referred to in different ways in different places. I'm just gonna call him the raspy voice. He's just, he's this guy with the voice. Mm-hmm. And the voice uh, who comes from an actor named Harry O'Toole is telling him, you know, how badly he had messed up. Oh, you really messed this thing up here. Yeah. This character feels like the most obvious attempt to make you wonder how much of this is real. Is this a voice it's, in his head? Yeah, like, 
Like they go There's over, no other freaking explanation. Right. They go over the top to try and make this not make sense so yeah. that, you know, when uh, Madeline Stowe sees this guy on the street, she talks to him and he doesn't know what, he's, what she's talking yeah, he's about. He's way inconsistent. Yes. And I think he's supposed to be because I think this is like their attempt to throw a little, like they don't want to pull a full on like Buffy in the asylum thing, but they kind of do. They want to do like, a, you know, is any of this real? Is it all fake? Is it all in his head? But they don't want to actually do that because it slows the story down too much. So we'll just throw this in to make you wonder what the hell's going on. And he voices a few things that we've started to figure out at this point, you know, talking about, you know, science isn't an exact science with these buffoons in the future. That's probably the best line. Even though they can keep tabs on him through time. Through his teeth. They can pull him out at any moment they want. They can't send him to a precise location, but they can keep an eye on him once he's there. Yes. And he gives he gives a good foreshadowing and says, oh, you're lucky you didn't end up in ancient Egypt or somewhere, right? Yeah. Right. And all of this is preceded by another flashback, which we've established that the blonde woman may be Catherine. Mm-hmm. In this one, the guy in the yellow jacket, the ponytail guy that runs by, turns around, and we see that that is Jeffrey Gomes. Right. And so we've established two of the characters of our three characters in this thing. That so plays then the out question the is, was it ever actually Jeffrey, or is that him misremembering his memory? Right. Or did he change the future by changing what he did with Jeffrey? And we which really Catherine has started to explain to him earlier earlier about no you you know it's uh you're incorporating things in your life the same way you do like she doesn't say this part but it is sort of the same sensibility as when you dream you dream about that you already did and you drop in people from your life doing things that don't make no sense i'm in a submarine but it's also a walmart that my (laughs) dad owned you haven't been to the submarine walmart (laughs) it's amazing We got all of that through a flashback after he had escaped the room. Well, now you have a flash forward then that takes us, he's back in the future Mm -hmm. again, right? He's before that big table full of scientists and they are questioning him about what he did and they're a little disappointed in kind of how the outcome of this went. They are playing him a reconstructed message um, of like a phone message that they received that ends with have a Merry Christmas in this sort of warped voice. He claims he didn't leave it and I mean, says it's that, very obviously her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you're uh, do you guys watch movies with the captions on? Only yes. if I'm eating do. chips. Mm. Oh, does it say it's her? Yes. In the, yes, it says Catherine's I voice. Yeah. I hate that. Yeah. They do say, he says, I didn't leave that, right? And says, you sent me to a year that's too early. They kind of find that hard to believe that they did that. But they show him a bunch of images Mm -hmm. and say, did you see any of these things, any of these people? And there is the stencil of the army of the 12 monkeys thing. Okay, that's, that's sort of familiar, but I didn't see that when I was there. There's some protesters. The protesters are holding signs. There's this pig's head statue that's in there for some reason. Did you see any of those? No, I didn't. But the next slide that comes up is Jeffrey Gomes, and oh yeah, I know that guy. Yes. Saw him in the institution. I saw, the, I saw, I met him in a mental institution, and that's where the whole and panel's just like, that's when they're like, geez. oh no, <laughs> you, you went. It's like in any Star Trek episode where a character goes back to the 20th century, and they're just like, oh no, Everything here is about to suck so bad. I have to get back to the future. No, and they do inevitably end up like in a mental institution or a prison. 
Well, and, and if they had sent back that other guard or whatever to help him, they knew he was in the mental institution, but everybody's acting right. Very, very Which means oh, that maybe man. he wasn't really there. Yeah. Maybe he wasn't really there or maybe... They're gaming it with correct. Cole and messing with his perception again. Yeah. And they say, okay, well, that equals a big L in our book. You know, you failed that mission, but we're willing to give you another chance. You have another <gasps> opportunity to help humanity. I suggest you take that chance. Why don't one of you do it? You know what's going <laughs> on here you go fix it i'm guessing because most people who go through the time travel thing go crazy that seems to be the indication is that you only get free ky at the end that's though. true as much <laughs> as you can eat and speaking of ky now speaking, be speaking a... of ky let's speaking go talk to our sponsors now this we'll... episode not sponsored by <laughs> ky jelly not yet <laughs> we'll be back to talk more about this and ky and other stuff right after this Hey, have you listened to the Art Curious podcast? Have you read the book? Have you watched the YouTube channel? No? I just, what are you doing with your life? Art Curious is a universe of content about all things unusual in art. It's the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful. It's hosted by the lovely and talented Jennifer Dassel. That's my wife. And it's the most bingeable content around. Is the Mona Lisa a fake? Was Vincent Van Gogh murdered? Was Donald Duck responsible for beating the Nazis? And what was the deal with Andy Warhol? Like, really, what was the deal? Listen, read, and watch fascinating stories like these and more when you subscribe today to Art Curious. Visit artcuriousmedia.com for more. Art Curious. Listen, read, watch. Art. This is Subgenre. You are listening to the big roundtable season finale-ish sort of thing on 12 Monkeys from 1995. I am here with Nick Heim and Fabian Marquez and Alan Mall and Charlotte Moore Lambert. And we are... Five monkeys. Five monkeys. And it's not even a round table. I know we address the this edges every are time. Edges. I just need to point out, it is a rounded rectangle. And that common phrase, the rounded rectangle table, is not as good. <laughs> But we will get back, <laughs> Lord, we will get back to talking about plot and what all of the time travel stuff means and why Bruce Willis is the way he is and <laughs> why Brad Pitt is the way he is and all of that stuff. But first, we're going to geek out. <laughs> awesome. For this geek out, we have a table full of people of varying ages and experience and all of that. And mm -hmm. so I, I want to take us back to the year that this movie came out, which is 1995. And Nick did this, I think, in the last episode of Ocean's Eleven, kind of set the scene for what the year was like when everything was uh, being released. And so I kind of wanted to do that here and, and just get everybody's reactions to it. So if we think about 1995, mm -hmm. here's a few things that were going on in 1995. In 95, this was really the first full year of the Clinton-Gore presidency. I'm sorry, no, 94 would have been the first. 92. Uh, is that right? Yes. yes. 92 and 96. Yeah, second. We, we, we were neck deep in Clinton. We, yeah. were, <laughs> we were coming we were up fist so deep in Clinton. full of Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Forget the timing on Clinton. They were in that White House. Yes. Stamps at that point cost 32 cents. If anybody oh. remembers the 32 cent stamps, we were paying $1.15 for a gallon of gas. Oh. Those good old days. I do remember that. And 1995 was the year that the DVD was invented. Mm. Oh. 
So DVD. Oh yeah. So this movie, Twelve Monkeys, would have been one of the first movies released yes. on DVD, as it was released, I think, in '96. What was know. the first movie you ever owned on DVD? I think mine was The Goodfellas. You had to flip over in the middle. Yes. But I think the one I, most people had as their first DVD was The Matrix. I have no, no memory of a, my a, first DVD. Good, good Movies aren't that important to me. I'm on the <gasps> show. Whatever it is, it's still here in this room. It's <laughs> over in my DVD collection somewhere, whatever it was. I don't recall. I missed most of the important things happening in 1995 because one of the most significant things happening to me in 1995, at which time I was age 12, was I was spending a lot of time crying alone. Oh. <laughs> so you should love this movie because that's the vibe we've got going. I didn't know what was going on. I was in my room by myself. No one was showing me anything cool. I was like, hey guys, I just found this cool book uh, by Robert T. Backer called Raptor Red. Do you guys want to talk about it? And they were like, shut up, nerd. And they put me in a locker. But speaking of nerds, it was a great time to be a nerd because the internet was coming into its heyday. Not if you were a girl. It was not a good time to be a nerd. It's always worse to be a girl when will you learn this <laughs> i have i have heard that from all of the world history <laughs> studied windows 95 oh, drop when was 95. we didn't even have windows 95 at my house we were still doing 3.1 which was really better i remember going yeah. to my girlfriend's house at the time and they had it and we didn't like windows 95 yeah. and she played like that little buddy holly weezer music video that came mm-hmm. as like a hidden mm-hmm. secret oh it was so exciting yeah and the number one song on the billboard charts for that year mm-hmm. anybody want to guess uh uh, 95. 95? Waterfalls? No. No, that would have been, been 94. Yeah, okay. I don't know. I don't what know. would it have been? The Macarena. Uh, that's right. <laughs> Which the answer is always dumber than you think. <laughs> the answer is always dumber than you think. It's never cool. It's leaping in my head. Music. I can hear that electronic Fabian, music right now. So Fabian, what were you doing in 95? Well, I was working as a phlebotomist, putting myself through a PhD, getting in a, I just became a gerontologist. <laughs> uh-huh. oh, yeah, makes sense. Went through my second divorce. Man, you're a lot older than I think you are. <laughs> <laughs> I was 22. Oh. <laughs> That but, checks, a hard but a hard 22. <laughs> well, I'm going to take all of us through. I'm going to give us just oh. a, a thing or two month by month in 95 just to, to take you in the Wayback Machine, mm. and then we'll get back to all the rest of this movie. Okay, you okay. ready for this? Yeah, ready. no. January of 1995, okay. the History Channel launches. Oh, the Hitler it, Channel. It had turned into the best channel ever once they got rid of all that pesky history. History. February, that is the year, 1995, the first African-American walks in space. Oh. In March is when Yahoo was incorporated. So Yahoo starts in 95. David Letterman hosts the Oscars. That's not an event. It was at the time because he was famously roasted for it. Uh (laughs) No one liked him hosting. Oprah. Uma. 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 Oprah, right? (laughs) Forrest Gump won six of its 13 nominations in that that year. year. Yeah. And Michael Jordan returned to the NBA. That I remember. Helped the Bulls win more championships. And sell more shorts with the Bulls logo on it. Sounds like a really boring, stupid year so far. OJ Simpson was declared not guilty. Right, that's good. Right, it's coming. It's coming. In April, we go we go back to Letterman for this one. In April, that's when Drew Barrymore danced on David uh, Letterman's desk event. and flashed that him. That was an event. That yep. was. Yep. The first TV series ever distributed via the internet. There were two of them. Rocks and Computer Chronicles were released in April of 95. That sounds fake. <laughs> I thought so, too. Not real. And the Oklahoma City bombing. That's right. Oh, that's that happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Christopher Reeve is paralyzed in May from 
horse riding accident. That was a bummer. We didn't like that. June, we haven't gotten to the acquittal yet, but June was the if it don't fit, you must acquit Mm. moment in the O.J. Simpson trial. That whole year was like being buried in an O.J. trial coffin. Um, Even when you were 12. (laughs) We finally got the Korean War Memorial in July of that year. Mm. In August was when Windows 95 came out, so that's when we get Bill Gates with all of his money. There was a formative event in my life. that, That was the July I turned 12, and I received my own phone from my room. Oh, fancy. Yeah, my own, my own phone I line. never had one of those. Yeah. Uh, September is when the Unabomber's manifesto was published in the New York Times and the Washington Post as a means of trying to get him to stop, which he did not. Fabian's still going to this day. <laughs> Uh, Will Ferrell Will Ferrell joined the Saturday Night Live cast uh, in September uh, of that year and Sony launched the PlayStation mm-hmm. oh PlayStation one. PlayStation October that's when OJ Simpson was uh, found not guilty the Carolina Panthers won their first game we're here in Carolina in North Carolina I'm putting sports in and uh, <laughs> I'm gonna put more and the Atlanta Braves won the World Series over the Indians that's, that was oh the, no yeah it was the first time the Braves had like won after getting to the World Series over and over again because that was back when I followed baseball and I cared about that I don't know <laughs> I anything about it I'm just Braves v. Indians. We gotta change those names. <laughs> <laughs> We're slowly making some progress on the that. The Indians though. are at least not the Indians Ooh. anymore. They're now the, the Guardians. The Guardians. Okay. Yeah. November, that's when the Dayton Peace Accords were signed that ended the Bosnian War. Mm-hmm. The first full-length computer animated movie, Toy, Toy Story. Toy Story. Uh, released in November by Pixar film. and Disney. I Can't Drive 55. The 55 mile per hour federal speed limit was finally abolished in 1995. Uh-huh. That is why we can drive as fast as we can today. Hell yes. <laughs> And up to 60 so fast. <laughs> and in December I is when... I couldn't make it 69, the nicest. Right? Yeah, nice. <laughs> in December was when the last Calvin and Hobbes was published. <sighs> I still have it. I cut Aww. it out of the newspaper on that day and put it in a little a box. A glorious and I still have it. day. This Hail a, Bill Waterson. This was a year, man. This One is of the, the only the humans to have artistic integrity, integrity throughout. Yes. The last things I've written down really about this year, just to take us all back, is some notable births and some notable deaths. Mm. The deaths were more familiar to me as people than the births. Um, but we'll go through the births first. Born in 1995, Joey Badass, the hip-hop artist who was on Mr. Robot. That's why I know him. He's a character in Mr. Robot, if you watch that show. Megan the Stallion, Logan Paul. Excuse me, Megan off. the Stallion. Excuse me, Megan the Stallion. Logan so Paul and his punchable face was born in that year. Yeah, the guy I sucks. That. Uh, Olympic swimmer Ryan Murphy. Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes is born that year. Mm. Doja Cat is born that year. Kendall nice. Jenner is born that year. Ooh. As well as Timothy Chalamet yes. and Jim Gabby Douglas. I don't know who that is. I don't is. know who that is. Olympic gymnast Gabby Douglas. Oh, oh I thought you said Jim the Scabby. Jim the Scabby Douglas. I was like, who's Jim the Scabby <laughs> Douglas? Like, this is some deep cut wrestler. You guys all know Jim the Scabby Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> Then really? we lost a few people that year. Who'd so our, our in memoriam for 95. We got are, out just in time. Got out. <laughs> our people like Rose Kennedy. So uh, uh, matriarch of the Kennedy clan. Uh, Easy E yeah. died that That's year. Right, from, from it was that long ago for Yeah, Easy? 95. Oh. Howard Cosell, Ginger Rogers of Fred and Ginger, Elizabeth Montgomery, who played Samantha on Bewitched, died uh, that year. Uh, yeah. Frizz Freeling. So if you are a, an animation Looney fan, Tunes Looney Tunes, he, oh, yeah, yeah, he yeah, drew yeah, Bugs yeah. Bunny. Yep, yep. Uh, Lana Turner, Bob Ross died in that year, oh, uh, July. No. Jerry Garcia died in August. Oh, yeah. And then uh, people like Mickey Mantle and Orville Redenbacher died in 95. Uh, <laughs> Popcorn was never the same. Never, never was. <laughs> Shannon Hoon 
the lead singer of Blind Melon, Blind Melon, as well as Butterfly McQueen from uh, Gone with the Wind and Dean Martin. Mm. I care about Dean very Martin. few of those people that you just listed. I think they were people mostly that were like people my grandparents liked on television. Yeah. Wow, I'm old. Nick at I know who all the of these people are and care deeply about all I of them. I know who they are, but I, they, they are. I don't remember them being alive that much. <laughs> like never, Dean Martin didn't put out a lot Dean of Martin. stuff during <laughs> life. Dean might have been uh, on the downslide at that point, <laughs> yeah. but you know. Well, that's 95, the setting for the year that all of this came out. We'll talk a bit more about uh, all of that in terms of movies maybe here in a little while. But in the meantime, let's get back to our feature presentation. So when we left off the last time, Cole was being given a second chance. We weren't quite sure what that second chance was going to be, but he was given a second chance. And so the setup for whatever this is, is he's being outfitted again. So put back in his suit, he's hooked up to wires and plastic tubes. He's put in this really kind of weird looking plunger of a time machine, right? Which kind of how it acts. It's a time douche. (laughs) (laughs) This time we get to see the time douche before we just did a fade out. Now we're watching the insertion <laughs> kind of a time pawn actually <laughs> they are sending him hold on i gotta take a moment to appreciate that one <laughs> yeah thank you heading back to 1996 which they assure him they're going to send him to right on the money this time He's and of stopping course stopping the flow of time for <laughs> that's what they make sure that get that smooth glide he is being sent back <laughs> yeah to 1996 right on the money and of course he winds up right in the middle of alan stop keeping it on topic <laughs> We have to. We're going to run the 87 hours. 1915, where yeah. he's surrounded by French soldiers wearing gas masks. He is in World War One. He is, along with his buddy, and, Scarface and, McGee. And how? And why? Because they suck at science. How? They suck at science no. and geography. He was, he totally was supposed right. to go to Philadelphia or whatever, was sent to Baltimore. Now he's sent to France. Yeah. But how is his friend there? Because like, they messed up multiple times. Why is his friend times? fully clothed and he's kind of not? Well, and, because he chose the Terminator package, which is you get sent in the nude through the time pond. Jose, the buddy, who yeah. shows up having been shot, it looks like. He's, he's on a stretcher. or whatever. a really bad time. It's bad. Yeah. He's there, essentially, I think, to either keep an eye on or retrieve Cole or something. Like Maybe. He, I just thought he got caught in, like, the time backflow or something. Yeah. Like, it was an accident. Was he... I interpreted it as like he was another volunteer that had been sent back and like they put him in the wrong uh, place scattering these like poor shaved head individuals but they managed to send both of them incorrectly to the exact same place yeah Yeah, like is there a guy at the end like oh shoot I had this number on this panel wrong I don't know where the hell they went I I always miss some mundane detail Um, Why France? You know, like, (laughs) no, I can answer the why France, I think. I think I can do this. Mm. So, okay, I'm going to try not to get too esoteric. But if you're doing time travel and time travel can actually work, then if you're only traveling through time and not space time, then you are ending up in the exact same place in space that you were before. But the rest of space is still moving. And so Earth is still moving and planets are still moving and, and the universe is expanding. And so geographically you would end up in a different no, place. No, but you should end up in the middle of the core of the Earth. That is true. <laughs> or floating in deep space. Like there's a, Yeah, because the whole thing is it's all moving. And the you, galaxy you is moving. You end up millions of miles also. away from where yeah. you started. Well, I was going to say, I mean, this is more for the episode before this, Time After Time. Even that ridiculous, much more enjoyable film about about H.G. Wells stopping Jack the Ripper in the 20th century had like 
Um, is that was, what that movie's about? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's delightful. It okay. is. I have not seen it. And Oh, it's a great movie. It's so good. And there actually is an explanation for like, he starts off in England and then he winds up in San Francisco and he's like, oh, I literally like, I turned left basically. Like I did, I oopsied. I know how I did this. The purpose of that scene, besides showing that they suck at sending him places in time, the purpose of that scene really is is that Cole gets shot in the leg. It being out in the middle of this battlefield, he's nude and whatever, and boom, somebody shoots him in the leg. He's been here for 30 seconds. And it'll come back. It'll, you know, he's, it's all quiet on the Western Front for about, you know, 30 Where seconds. Where am I? Boom. And then boom, he's gone again. They realize their mistake and he dips and he's gone, but with a bullet in his leg. We are taken as an audience back to Baltimore in November of 96, so a few months later than when Cole had been there previously. 95? Uh, sorry, no, we come back to 96. He had gotten there in 95, I think, previously. We're in 96 okay, now. Okay. And Catherine is... Wait, no. Yeah, no, that's right. He'd been there in 90. He was there in 90. In 90, he was trying to go to... Right. But this... Okay, but why 90? So this movie came out in 95. Yeah, right. But it's supposed to take place in... Set in 96. There you go. Okay. So Catherine's given a lecture. In front of the world's most obvious green screen. Correct. Mm -hmm. All of those slides were put in after the fact, obviously. Yeah. You and I... I don't know that everybody watching this can tell, but... but (laughs) Yes, Yeah, people who do this for a living. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty clear that she was competent. She's giving a lecture because she's written a book, and the book is about madness, and apocalyptic visions and and people who say that the end of the world is coming over the history of time. And she has this big slideshow that she's showing. And as one of the pictures of somebody who was theoretically foretelling the future, she shows a photo of Jose on the stretcher in World War One and gives this story about how, you know, he said he had come back from the future and was looking for a pure German that would ultimately wipe mankind off starting in 1996. And the whole audience laughs because it's 1996. Right. So then he must have been another volunteer. That yep. must be it. If he already had that, he had the same story. So he was not, okay. That's true. And she mentions this thing called the Cassandra complex, mm. which is basically the agony of foreknowledge, but with the impotence to do anything about it. You you know it's something's going to be bad, but you can't do anything to do it. And so therefore suffering. Right. Which is a real thing. Play into all of this. Right. In the back of the auditorium watching her is... What looks to be one of her fans, maybe. We'll find out that this is Dr. Peters, played by David Morse. Yeah. Um, in a weird red wig. Yeah. In a weird yeah. red wig, yeah. Who I could, mean, I, I'm assuming it was <laughs> to try and confuse you about who was going to be in the airport at the end to make the fake hair that Cole has and the weird wig that David Morse has on look kind of the same. And initially, I was just like, oh, yeah, it's the mid-90s. Like, <laughs> <laughs> this was sure just how looks like Man that. wearing long ponytails yeah. is acceptable. But yeah, he comes up getting his books signed and he's telling you like you're giving alarmists a bad name i mean if you look at all the things that are happening it's pretty clear that they're on point with this yeah and he gives a very good creepy performance mm-hmm. in a short amount of yes, time like you immediately like oh this guy's way too intense about this yes. and he's like friendly but like won't blink and yeah it's it's well done it's a much more restrained performance than Brad Pitt, who's doing everything. Yes. He's doing a couple things very well. And then there's mm-hmm. also one guy, as soon as he sort of finishes his bit and ducks out of the scene, there's one guy, a man who ducks in right after and leans into Catherine and is like, uh, Doctor, I don't know if you perhaps have read my work. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, he's the worst one in the movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. But enough about me. What did you think of my last picture? <laughs> it also made me realize, like, if you write this book, you are just 
purposely putting yourself in with the worst people you could ever deal with. You're turning the history channel into ancient aliens. Yes, exactly. And you are like, hey, weirdos of the world, come talk to me all the time for yeah. the next 20 years. Well, and, and he gives in. he gives Morse gives that weird performance and kind of that, that creepy vibe. You get the sense that as Catherine is walking out of this talk late at night by herself to her car, that maybe he is waiting for her or something along those lines, yeah. which turns out not to be the case. He isn't waiting for her, but someone else is. Dude in a mask, forces her at gunpoint into her own car, but very quickly is revealed to be Cole. Yeah, and I think they try and make it seem like it might not be him because they have someone else dub his voice for a little bit, but it's obvious from the first second that it's him. It's obvious, and he doesn't have a gun. No. He says he has a gun. Right. She knows who it is, you know, remembers him from all of these years back as, you know, the patient who escaped, and he basically tells her the reason I'm here is because you offered to help me. Okay, I could use some help. I'm shot in the leg and I'm still trying to find the virus and I need you to take me to Philly. We're in Baltimore right now. I need you to take me to Philly. So he kidnaps her. This is the beginning of her making a series of decisions where she could get away from him and chooses not to because of feelings? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, why? Why? Like there are like eight times when she could just drive away and she said she's like, but he's so Bald. His mouth looks like a rectum. I'm have you just... seen his butt? Have you? No. Have you? Have you ever seen a butt you wanted to scrub with a push broom more than this one? More than once in a same film. It makes me so. Tired. <laughs> they drive to Baltimore. They listen to music on the way, including some Tom Waits. This is where Tom Waits comes Tom in. Tom Waits, and even more specifically, that will come into play later. They listen to "Blueberry Hill" by Fats Domino. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> sets up the most horrifying scene oh, in the movie. Later. Makes so little sense. <laughs> There's an ad about the Florida Keys on the radio at the same time, which is this recurring thing that keeps happening. But, but basically, this is Cole saying. These are things I don't have where I come from, and boy, do I enjoy them so much. Listening to the music, sticking his hat out the window, and breathing the fresh air, right? And All of that stuff. I think that they've had a conversation where she says, you don't have a gun, do you? She know, Like, she knows. At worst, this is a crazy man in her car, and... At best, he's a lost, confused man who maybe really does need her help. And either way, she's kind of here for it. She wants to see where it goes. But I think that she does a really good job of selling that. Like, she's maybe overacting a little bit, but her expressions are going from like, I'm freaked out, I'm intrigued. I'm freaked out, I'm what the... And it's still... But at this point, you're not getting... It's like a romantic... No. no thing. It's still very like she's a woman in shock. The performance is all in the eyes on her. It's and the scared eyes, but the trying to make it work. Yeah, and I think Gilliam's yeah. giving her almost an impossible thing to play, which is terrified of this man, but also maybe intrigued, and maybe you love him. <laughs> <Which>? <laughs> because of all those times you saw him drooling? I don't know what it is. Uh Alongside the song on the radio is another important plot point. This radio story about a kid who has become trapped in a well and there are rescuers that are flooding in to see if they can get this nine-year-old kid out of a well, et cetera, et cetera, which at the time in 95 would have been very reminiscent of the baby Jessica situation that had happened, I think, in the mid to late 80s. Yes. Falling down the well. And foreshadowing for everyone's favorite balloon boy. Balloon right. boy. <laughs> and she's very concerned about this kid, as everyone seems to be. The only person who's not concerned is Cole, because Cole just sort of did misses it and says, ah, it's a hoax. You know, don't, yeah. don't worry about it. hiding in a barn. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that that conversation is a little bit later, but he is yeah, very disinterested yeah. in the story. Yeah. Never point. cry wolf, I think is what he says, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Because then people won't believe you when the truth happens. 
He falls asleep in the car is what we assume because we get another flashback. This time, the long-haired man, you know, is being shot. Here's Catherine in her blonde wig that is rushing to him. And there's not a change really in that flashback, but it is a bridge to get us out of the car and get us into a hotel room where he is waking up and he's untied and Catherine is tied to the bed. Once again, with the bondage. Mm. A lot of bondage in this movie. And, and it's sniffing. not even good and sniffing. sniffing. It's not even good bondage. I'm like, girl, <laughs> this is not Shibari. You, you can get out of this. You can't break out of this. Come you on. Can, this is a bed sheet or some shit. Come mm. on now. You've had all Try night to work harder. on this. Yeah. No, don't. I can't get out. Don't smell me, Bruce Willis. <laughs> Not all 12 monkeys. <laughs> no. Don't smell me, Bruce Willis, should be the tagline of this episode. <laughs> that or this is not Shibari. This is not Shibari. That's the place in the mall where you get pizza, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you mixed up those two stories, you'd be having for an interesting dinner. Got some Shibari for lunch. <laughs> it was a lot. This is where they have the conversation between them about replacing things in his vision with things in real life. So she moves, even though she's tied to the bed, she moves into psychiatrist mode and begins to help him try to understand that the things that he's seeing in his head may not be real things and that he is substituting in her and other people just because they are there and plants that in him and in all of us. Which again is good writing. Like She is falling back as a defense mechanism on the thing that is safest and best known for her, which is logic. Okay, let me, I can't physically get my way out of this situation. I'll analyze my way out of this situation. Maybe I can get him to see reason. Maybe I can get him to calm down. I'll use what I know. Yeah, and they do a really good job of making you, like you're on Bruce Willis's side because you know you've been in the future with him, but also you totally understand why she's terrified of yeah. And, and mm-hmm. she is right to be terrified of yeah. him. Yeah. They get from this hotel. So they have their time in the hotel. She talks to him. She plants this idea. They drive to Philadelphia. Once in Philadelphia, she is driving him around kind of a, you know, lower end, skid row end part of town where he is looking for something. We're not quite sure what he's looking for, but they are searching. And he finds it, he thinks, by seeing some spray paint on the wall, right? Red spray paint that vaguely resembles this 12 monkey symbol and makes her stop to have a look. Yes. And I think this scene to me feels like when it goes from the story is moving along to... Now Terry Gilliam's just indulging his like torture porn thing where it's like, okay, now let's have a scene where there's going to be assault and there's going to be murder and nothing, literally, they don't even have to be in this building. There's nothing of value is gained from this entire sequence other than just to traumatize the woman and make her want to like trust the guy. A quick quick moment where one of the guys is going to rape her. Right. Got to add some of that in there. Why is that there? Well, I'll disagree with you slightly. I think that. Well, you'd be wrong. I am right. I think this moment, though excessive, I agree with you, it's excessive. I think that the moment, though, is here because this is this is where they go into the theater and there's some guys that are trying to attack them. And ultimately, Cole kills at least one of them, maybe both of them. Right. This is to establish that Cole has the capability to kill. You think to try and justify their lethal force on him at the end? A, and B, also because we're going to have a moment, a kind of a false moment in a few scenes where we think that maybe he has killed her. 
But they don't need to do that because way back at the beginning, when he's first in jail, we established that he's dangerous. And, and I that's mean, they, why he's they, in jail. They put a gun in his hand at the end. That's all you really need for justification as to why they would kill him at the end of the movie. He's yeah. smelling a tied up lady. He's <laughs> obviously potentially dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I get what you're saying. That, I, But, yeah, but yeah. I think there are other ways you could get the same result. And Agreed. not have it feel so much like, all right, let me step aside here to make sure that we use the threat of violence to push this woman into the point of view we need her to be in rather than letting her arrive there through her actual thoughts. And raspy voice guy shows up in this scene mm-hmm. we, we've heard his voice before he shows up in the persona of a homeless guy who is talking to them while they're hanging out outside he's there for one reason as well to show or to at least proclaim that the people from the future can track you in the past by something that's implanted in your teeth and he's removed his own teeth right in order to subvert that which is explained later to be true like his buddy uh, jose says why'd you take your tooth out you shouldn't have done that but then you called the phone and we were able to track the phone, which then if they can track the phone is like, what are we doing with this time travel stuff? <laughs> <laughs> so there are too many questions and we are not supposed to be asking yeah, that's them. True. You were never supposed to watch this movie more than once. Is the <laughs> <laughs> that is actually... But I only watched it once and I had all the same questions. And not be Charlotte Moore when well, you watch this movie. Well, and not be 20 years in the future. Yeah. yeah. But his appearance further confuses his existence, mm-hmm. the raspy voice guy. And there who is, keeps calling him Bob? Who keeps calling him Bob <laughs> for some reason? Him Bob, we never get an explanation for why he calls him Bob. Because he's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> he's an interesting performance in the scene. One of my favorite characters in the movie is the other sort of, you know, manic street preacher guy that's in this who's this he's dressed in like medieval garb and he's proclaiming about the the seven seals. This whole scene is shot like Life of Brian, where you're like through the little flames in the foreground and you've got the preacher and you're kind of tracking to the right. Yeah, it's very Life of Brian. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but you're right. On the edge of all of this. So we've had the scene. He's Cole has beaten up and killed the guys that tried to attack them, etc. Across the street. Had they just gone the opposite way for like, you know, half a block, he ends up seeing, remember that pig head statue that we mentioned? Yeah, that was in the slides from earlier in the future. Well, he finds it. It's above the doorway of this building that is marked as the FAA, which I think is the Freedom for Animals Association. There you go. Not to be confused with the Federal Aviation Administration. (laughs) Yeah, they can do both. It's an animal rights group. It is familiar, and so therefore they knock on the door. And they end up meeting, after knocking long enough, they end up meeting the people who are currently inside. And it's three members of this group. They start questioning these three members about the Army of the Twelve monkeys and about, you know, Jeffrey Goins and all of these. I think they just mentioned the Army of the Twelve Monkeys and one of them mentions, ah, frickin' Goins or whatever. And so there is a connection made there between at least a thing that was identified in the future as being part of the plot and Goins. But they say they don't have any knowledge of it. I have no idea what, what Jeffrey's up to. Don't know, don't know. And Cole has his gun. And he has gotten from the two guys that he probably murdered in the previous. At least one of them got murdered. Yeah. Yep. And and so pulls it on these people, which is what kind of gets them talking, ends up tying them up and getting more information out of them, not the least of which is that, remember Jeffrey in the asylum mentioned his father who was big and powerful? Well, his father, the big and powerful father, is actually a Nobel Prize winning physicist. Virologist. Virologist. Nobel Prize winning virologist. And Goins is into guerrilla actions and doing things that are educating people about animals and all that kind of stuff. Animal cruelty. So yeah, setting animals free as part of his activism and then 
they mentioned how he and another guy had split off to form an underground army, but they never actually done anything. And turned then on the FAA and going and saying, well, you know, maybe some animal research is necessary for my father's research. So he's, you know, an apostate to some degree from the FAA mm-hmm. doing what he's doing currently. There's something interesting. Maybe if that previous scene serves any purpose, it's maybe in conjunction with this one. Sort of thematically, one thought that I did have while I was watching it was that it's very interesting to see Catherine start to panic in a lot of these situations. Like uh, she's being dragged along and she's going, I don't think we should be here. I don't think we should be here. This place looks really dangerous. These people are messed up. And she's a psychiatrist. She's made this her life's work but this is the first time that she's really actually in the field she's used to being safe Mm -hmm. and in clinical settings and now she actually has to be on the streets she seems appalled and fascinated but mostly it's like very rich lady privilege and maybe that's and like that very quickly does seem to it's like the crazy infection through like oh no it's catching because now she starts to act a little crazy herself yeah plague of madness yeah they get the address of jeffrey Goins' father from a rolodex remember rolodex kids oh i do (laughs) how does bruce willis remember what rolodex is he doesn't i know but he knows to grab it he does he he grabs what is this this? (laughs) there's a thousand things in that room part of his time (laughs) but not how to work it. there's a bit in the background before he grabs a rolodex he's messing with a stack of boxes that yeah i keep falling fall over i don't think that was scripted no me either i'm like i'm like he looks like he's getting actually annoyed by those boxes that keep trying to fall on him <laughs> Then they head off to Goins' house. Yeah, by stealing the car, one of the group, right? And uh, that's when we finally get to meet uh, the great Christopher Plummer. Almost. In the car on the way, though, there is an important bit, which is the first time that she notices, really, that he's wounded. Mm -hmm. And that he's told her that he had, you know, had a hurt leg or whatever. But this is the first time he says, I got shot. You've been shot? Show me. I'm a doctor, right? Which, that's not how that works, but yes. No, but she does, as a psychiatrist, she does have medical training. Enough to She's bullet. not a psychologist. Enough to remove a medical... Uh, it's, just, it's at least as plausible as many, many things so we have forgiven fair, so far. Fair point, to this fair point. <laughs> she can probably cut him open and sell but, him. Butter knife and some peroxide. You can get anything out of anywhere. Just get a slap patch on it. It'll be fun. <laughs> so, so she says, look, you got to let me take care of you, right? And so she, he finally you says, yeah, fine. let me take care of you. It's really more of the vibe. Let me take care I love of you. you. <laughs> I love you, man who kidnapped me. His mouth is so wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> so to, Slime on me, Bruce Willis. To take care of him, as you do, she pulls off into the wo- rapey the woods. woods. <laughs> oh, God. Why? It's like the middle of no... Like, Why are you going to pull off... Woods? Are you going to pull off in the middle of the forest with the dude, the crazy dude from, you know, that escaped? I thought they were going to pull off in that gas station. He's yeah. like, right. look, I'm not stupid. I know... I said I can't drive, but I know when we're not out of gas. You don't need gas. And right. she's like, no, but I need to help you. I thought they were going to pull over to the gas station. Yeah, have a little no. Terminator 2 thing where they're in the gas station fixing things well, whatever, up. Whatever, just in the parking lot. She went and got people. surgical supplies from the little country store. <laughs> yeah. And then took him into the woods. Into if the I woods. were him, I'd be thinking she might murder me. She also should true. murder him. That would be the smart <laughs> choice. You are working on him. You could just cut his his artery and be done. Yeah, so in this dubious location, she uh-huh. removes the bullet. And saves it. And right? it's a large she bullet. She looks at it. She's bullet. like, this yeah. doesn't look like a normal looks tiny like bullet. looks like the whole bullet, not a, just the part that fires. <laughs> It's very strange. 
there is that. The whole thing. It's I'm like, this looks like someone just it. threw this bullet at this guy. <laughs> He's like, this looks like a plot point. <laughs> I better hold I'll on. Put to this, this over here. Label this. And for whatever reason, in that piece of the film, she's removed the bullet from his leg. She says, "Hey, we we need to go and give yourself up and whatever." He basically Frankenstein monsters her and re- you know hands out in front of him and reaches like he's going to choke her to death yeah. with her grabbing, I'm going, sorry. "What are you doing?" <laughs> and and he apologizes. And we cut to black, thinking, "Oh my goodness, James Cole has just killed the psychiatrist." Mm-hmm. Right. Although you know he didn't because you've seen her in the airport. Right. Yeah, because he goes without her then. Yeah. Yep. Next scene, they're at the mansion. To the mansion yeah. of the virologist, yeah. where he's holding court for something. I couldn't tell if this was because of his award or just no. some I other dinner party. Know. It's I say, some I rich say, guy boy, sh- time for me to have an award. Yeah, it's he's basically the night out about something he thank you gentlemen whatever and brad pitt's there looking crazy in, in a, a tuxedo tux, with long hair now with the long hair that he's not using proper conditioning techniques on because it's a very obvious wig it's <laughs> not good he I was, they did it much better in an interview with the vampire definitely and this is dr goins this is christopher Plummer, like we mentioned before mm-hmm while Jeffrey is sitting there watching his father speak. It's a very important speech. We have, well, and we skipped this earlier in back at the hospital in the scene where Brad Pitt's like, talk, he's talking about the escape plan. You can't get out of here. And Bruce eats the spider and all the stuff. Mm-hmm. He starts talking about like, my dad's not my dad. I, my dad is God. I like I worship my father. My father is God. Yes. And then he pulls his pants down. <laughs> right. And moons the orderlies as they drag him out. This is how it Why always goes. You? I mean, yeah. that's what happens whenever any of us talk about our fathers. <laughs> yeah. Jeffrey unfortunately has to leave cheeks out for death. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible fundraiser. He's dragged away because there is someone at the door he is told by one of the guards and we didn't want to kick him out in case he was one of your buddies. He says he knows you. He's at the door collecting for cheeks out for dad. (laughs) I don't know what that is, but he wants five bucks. He says you found it. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, it's Cole. Jeffrey looks at him and says, I have no idea who this person is. Take him away until Cole mentions that he's here about 12 monkeys. Yeah. And okay, yep, yep, I know this guy. This yeah. is my best buddy in the Jeffrey's whole wide like, world. Whoop. Yeah, it's my best uh-huh. friend, Arnold Pettibone. <laughs> Arnold Pettibone, Arnie. Arnie. He dismisses the guards and here uh, these two have some time alone. Some time alone. And this is where Jeffrey says, ah, you know, Cole, you're up to your old plans, aren't you, about the virus that's going to wipe out humanity. And th- I think that's when Cole sort of understands that maybe doubt. he gave this idea. Right, yeah, like maybe I'm part of this. This is not how he remembers it, yeah. uh, but maybe he did. Maybe right. he, he did was pretty this. drugged up at the yeah, time. Yeah. yeah, oh God, maybe I did do this. Just by talking about what he knows to be the future, he may have given the idea to the guy in the past, and then that does oh, create no, some... Oh no, the prime directive. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the timeline has been oh, sullied. No. And there's an escape. Cole has moment with Goins. We find this information out. Cole then has to get away and takes a leap off the balcony, you know, booth style uh, on, onto the, uh, onto the stage. It should have been a reference screen. Yeah, that's right? a good one. He had panache. That's an In the Line of Fire reference for anyone. Who's oh, I thought maybe you were just movie. a fan of John Wilkes Booth. <laughs> that was what I thought of this. Too. He has a very rectal mind. mouth. That's what I like about him. Oh. He escapes, and of course, this is the moment from the trailer where you you get uh, Brad Pitt yelling, ladies and gentlemen, do you know where he thinks he comes from? Implying that Goins also is still not a believer in the whole time travel thing. I I was getting shades of Tyler Durden with this scene, Yes, absolutely. Definitely. Tyler Durden is the better version of this character. Oh, yeah. Like, it's the same character, but better, like more refined. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. There is a news... A report, like a TV news report that plays immediately after this. There that are talks a lot about, of news reports. There are a 
this so, section. Like this whole section, like middle, middle end of Act Two, is like half news reports. It's yeah. cruise control for exposition. You're like, yeah, oh, yeah. It, it is an easy way <laughs> to, yeah. to sort of like just let's just get on to the next piece mm-hmm. of this. I will say this: they actually look and sound like real news reports, unlike They're, a lot of movie news reports that are like filmed with the same cinema cameras and they yeah. look weird. Yeah. yeah. And the news report is talking about a body that was found in the woods, and it, w- it was of a woman, and they think maybe it's Kathleen Rayleigh, who is this author who was Catherine, sorry, who was kidnapped by James Cole. So all of this is all in this report. And it lasts for a second where you think that may be true, and then it isn't, because Cole shows back up in the woods at the car, opens the trunk, and there's Catherine in the trunk, and she's just all pissed. mad yeah. as a hornet's nest. Oh, yeah, furious, kicking at him, just like, why did you put me in there? I could have died. He says, you know, he apologizes to her, and she sees, is it blood on him or something? It's his own blood, I guess. Yeah. But But she's, she asks if he killed somebody, and his response is, yeah, like 500 billion people. <laughs> <laughs> 500 billion. You know, so many it's a people. Lot. It's a lot. Solar systems. <laughs> people. What kind of virus is this? Yeah. But it shares that it might have been his idea. He's now convinced it is, yeah. is, right. is what it feels like. Is he's yeah. convinced that, oh my goodness, I am the cause for this entire thing. And so he's basically ready to give himself up at this point. And then the cops show up. And then the cops show up. Yeah, no. yeah, right. Because they're looking for him because he crashed the party. And so she's telling him, hey, I'm... I'm going to honk the horn. They're going to come find us. Everything is going to be okay. We're just going to comply. take you back. Yeah, just com- just be cool, comply, and everything will be fine. What about this man makes you think he has any ability to be cool? He's, and he's like, literally splashing in the creek yeah. at this point. He decides he wants to be cool now by celebrating how great it is to <laughs> splash in a forest stream. So he goes from this emotional thing of, I may have caused the death of all mankind to put the water in the air. It's he's so having a, cold. He's having a breakdown. It's all falling apart. And just like with the... (laughs) (laughs) No one's cleaned my ass in four scenes. (laughs) Fingers crossed that the butt scrubbing may be behind me. (laughs) (laughs) And as with the World War I scene, he disappears. Mm -hmm. Before the cops can get there and when she turns around, he's gone. And so in the 1996 timeline, uh, who knows what the hell happened to this guy again. She is still there, though, in the 96 timeline. Yeah, this and is where Christopher Maloney shows up. Christopher Maloney shows up as, as a lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Halperin, who is kind of debriefing her after her kidnapping incident and shows her photos of, you know, here's the guy, the, the two guys that Cole killed. Here's all the havoc that he has wreaked. And you're sitting here telling me that he's just a misunderstood guy and I should this be This is yet another dude who treats this woman like garbage just for her being a person who thinks about things. And Men I, don't do that. I know. It's like not it's, realistic. It's a surprisingly aware thing from Terry Gilliam yes. who is not usually aware of such things. Yes. Yeah. To be fair, Terry Gilliam didn't write That's this. That's true. It was, it was co-written by a woman, correct? Correct. correct. So she's like, no, you gotta, you gotta gaslight her more. <laughs> Make her sound like <laughs> (laughs) an idiot for doing the normal thing that she should do. But I will say um, the scenes in which she appears are among the easiest to watch because Gilliam drops a lot of his stupid conventions and just points the camera at her. Let's her act. Yeah, she's she doesn't have to like talk thing. through an orb or anything. Right, yeah. there's nothing. He's like, look, all right, let me show you. She's the sane one. Right, medium shot of this woman talking. <laughs> <laughs> but the next time we'll make it crazy. It's a Dutch angle of just Bruce Willis's left nostril. <laughs> it's oozing something. <laughs> Scrub his ass. It's not even in the shot, sir. Do it anyway. <laughs> After doing all of his gaslighting and things at the, uh, at the stage, Wow. <laughs> Sorry. Cheeks out for death. <laughs> 
He sends her back to her apartment and puts a cop car outside just to keep an eye on her just in case. Um, While she is back home trying to get her life back together, there is another news report. So here's like our third one in a couple of minutes about how... Oh, wait, 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 but then we've got to go back then because I think he and her talk about the news story several times. Okay. And then it's finally, I think, when they're in the woods at some point where he's like, oh, the kid in the well. And he's like, no, I remember being really concerned about that when I was a little boy. Right. And it ended, they're in the car (laughs) when they're talking about it. I remember being really worried about it and it ended up being nothing. He was just hiding in a barn the whole time. Yeah. There is talk, I think, at the party maybe that he crashed. Right. There's two people that are talking about how they're They're thinking about lowering a monkey with a roast beef sandwich that down in the hole. And then they show it there. The One of the news clips shows a little monkey <laughs> in a little sandwich. bucket. <laughs> I want to know how many sandwich. actual monkeys are in this movie because yeah. are there 12 of them? Oh right. god, I just would throw myself off the building <laughs> if there are 12 actual monkeys in this movie. <laughs> Terry, if you did that, Attention Stop making film. <laughs> she watches to see that this whole thing has resolved itself. The kid in the well thing. It is a prank. The kids have admitted to it. The one kid was hiding in a barn. So everything that James Cole has told her has been true as far as that is concerned. And that is distressing to her. Well, no, yeah, because I mean, distra- she's got like two weeks to live. This is what actually unravels her yeah. because she glides out of her bedroom and her robe and she sits down on the couch and she's watching the TV and everything seems fine. And then she gets up to go make herself some tea or something elegant. And then with her back to the TV, she hears the farm thing. And then she stops dead in her tracks and madness enters her eyes. And she suddenly, the next, she's like, I have to call, I think Owen is the other doctor. She's no. like, I gotta call Owen. He was right about the barn. It was the barn. If he was right about the barn, oh, yeah. then she he buys has to be 100%. right about all of it. And it's and he's like, lady, uh, maybe you've gone too far in the other direction. Well, and also this guy has so little empathy for someone who was just kidnapped for like a day. And she's like saying something kind of crazy. And he's like, are you insane? Doesn't he, there's what? some point in the movie where it's like a lady psychiatrist. Yeah, probably. He yes. said, no, there is. Yeah, there he is. says yeah. that. I don't remember when, but like, yes. But the point is like, for her, it's at the barn. That's the that's the evidence. Mm, there's a, an even greater unraveling that's coming. Mm-hmm. And it comes right after or re- right near when we get to go back to Cole for a minute and where this he is. is the scariest scene in the movie he, where you see yeah, the go. little like ceiling image of like the tropical beach and then these scientists oh, lean yeah. in and start <laughs> singing Blueberry Hill and I'm like oh my god <laughs> this is the most oh. Brazil-ish yes. of any oh, yeah. of the and scenes. I hated oh, yeah. it. It was so weird just, and well, unnecessary. They all, look, they all look so strange and their voices are so off key. Oh it's, it's terrible. Just, like, and everything so, about this And is... like so what they can hear they're, they're literally able to monitor every moment of his life in the past so then why does he need a voicemail he can just look up at the deus ex machina and go um so did you see that did you see so make a note of that the deus ex machina guy's out today (laughs) (laughs) leave a message he's had that vacation on the calendar for like (laughs) two months they tell him this is your reward we know you love music you told us so i think they say actually you told us so maybe when he was out Mm. so they're singing blueberry hill to him how do they know blueberry hill (laughs) i don't know they have a painting above uh, his head that he likes that's you know beautiful to kind of give him something that's beautiful they tell him he's connected the army of the 12 monkeys to the virologist good job buddy and because you have done that that's going to help us and so therefore here's your pardon he hasn't brought them a sample so they've still got to send a guy back for the which again listen the old covid boosters don't work anymore that strain's dead it's extinct having it wouldn't help would you you have known that as a common audience member before we all went through this in 2020 i don't know i don't know what i would know as a common audience member because my brain is too full of bull****.
uh, including the way that viruses evolve. But I don't know. I, but it's fine. This is Cole's moment of slipping into full belief that he may actually be insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That all of <laughs> that this is a I'm figment. Insane of his imagination and basically laughs at them in their pardon. Yeah, you know, Bruce is really going through it. This is the most you will ever see Bruce Willis do in a role. Like he is yeah. going through all the emotions here. We go to Cole by himself somewhere in the future again, back in his cell or, or somewhere else, but basically getting raspy voice again. Mm. Yeah. And raspy voice is talking to them about, you need to do what you need to do to get what you really want. Oh, what do I want? You want to be with her. You want to smell the air and feel the breeze, and you want to be with Catherine. And Why? we haven't done a great job of setting up any kind of romantic no. right tension Ooh. between no. these people. I mean, you get that they are okay with each other, but never once am I like, oh, they're really into He's each other. He's kidnapped like, her, dragged her around. Sorry, go ahead, Fabian. Well, I was just, what do you? What do we know about either of them? Nothing. Like as people, nothing. Yeah, absolutely. It's, there's nothing to invest in, and you don't see anything for them to invest in each other. And I'm like, this is my big problem with the movie is I can't invest in anybody. I mean, and and it feels very much like we've just added this romantic subplot because it was required and not because it was actually needed or earned. Is it along the lines? I mean, if you got to find a reason to justify it, is it along the lines of sort of like in the Bourne identity to where Fomka Jansen's character says to Jason Bourne, you know, don't forget me. How can I forget you? You're the only person I know. Yeah. Is it really in, in this that, yeah, that James Cole has lived in this garbagey time with nothing good forever. Right. He goes back, and this is the only bright light he's ever seen is her. Well, and I think this leads to the thing you were talking about at the beginning, Charlotte, where you know this is the dude movie, and so the fact that she's just pretty girl is enough to make her an object worth investing in emotionally, but then the movie doesn't do the work beyond making her pretty girl in movie and so you're it supposed starts to just off that it starts off by presenting her as this interesting absolutely strong-willed career like rational woman who's she's on a book tour and right. she's got colleagues who respect her and she's worked very hard to get where she is and blah 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 and now by the end she's in a blonde wig chasing after him <laughs> <laughs> in the airport <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to part one of Subgenre, a podcast about the movies, and our episode on 12 Monkeys. Don't go anywhere, because dropping soon, heaven help us, it's part two. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host roundtable of Charlotte Moore Lambert, Nick Heim, Fabian Marquez, and Alan Mall. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza featuring Solar Flare. If you thought this episode lacked redeeming social value, just you wait. Don't miss the day we drop the ending of our season finale. Subscribe now to Subgenre on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you find podcasts. We've got enough episodes and bonus content to keep you listening well into the future. Got any friends? Tell them about our show. Then leave your five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's quite literally massive in helping other listeners find us just like you did. To support this show with your donation, or hey, maybe your advertisement, click the links on our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do Insta and the other thing, both at Subgenrepod. 
our pure strain of the 12 monkeys virus is coming back your way soon. But in the meantime, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki.